here let's go to tucker carlson let's see what tucker carlson has to say come on man come on man you could call it that good evening and welcome to tucker carlson tonight happy monday if you could call it that but you can't like most americans you're probably still trying to digest what has happened over these past four days Profound national trauma is like that. Once you face something unimaginably horrible, nothing is ever the same. Nothing will ever be the same. Like prison, it changes a man. This is not an easy time for any of us. We get it. We're literally, literally still shaking as we think about how close this country came to losing our democracy last Thursday. Last Thursday was June 16th, a day forever branded in our memory, a day that has joined the pantheon of tragic turning points in human history. Where were you on 616? You'll never forget, and neither will we. At the time, we were preparing a show on Tony Fauci and his push for a new corona shot for kids. It seemed important then. It seems so trivial now. As we were speaking on the air, at that very moment, a team of seven saboteurs had entered the Capitol grounds and then proceeded, as saboteurs do, to breach the Capitol itself. Inside those hallowed grounds, within the very womb of democracy, these wreckers began their hunt for sitting members of Congress. That happened, ladies and gentlemen. And if it sounds shocking to you, it gets more harrowing from there. This was not some spontaneous outbreak of insurrection. No, this was a meticulously planned coup from afar. The group in the Capitol was under the direct control of an extremist called Stephen Colbert, who as a white man is by definition a white extremist. This white extremist, Stephen Colbert, had a fifth column within the Capitol to help him pull off his diabolical plan. He had members of Congress in his employ, members of Congress who, believe it or not, helped the insurrectionists enter the Capitol. Just open the doors and let them walk in. Yes, that can happen. And that fifth column included Adam Schiff of California, Stephanie Murphy of Florida, and a new member called Jake Auchincloss of Massachusetts, besmirching his family name. Those three members of Congress allowed the wreckers inside the Longworth House office building. While inside, the insurrectionists tried to gain access to a restricted area, but they were thwarted by brave law enforcement who arrived, risking their very lives to remove the insurrectionists from the premises. But it wasn't enough. Because hours later, an aide to Congressman Auchincloss secretly permitted the insurrections to re-enter the Capitol complex. And then around 8.30 p.m., they caused some kind of disturbance. The details are murky as of tonight. But according to one report, they were banging on windows inside the Capitol, trashing the place, committing violence against our democracy. And for that, apparently, we are hearing tonight, they were put in jail. But within hours, they were out again. Now, the man who controlled this attempted to coup, Stephen Colbert, knew exactly what he was doing. He knew the stakes. He knew the crimes he was committing. And we know that because just last year, this white extremist, Stephen Colbert, 
explained that grown men who unlawfully enter the Capitol to harass sitting members of Congress are not pranksters. They're not protesters. They're domestic terrorists. Lord have mercy. There are some dark subjects that we talk about on the show occasionally, but I've rarely been as upset as I am tonight. This is the most shocking, most tragic, least surprising thing I've ever seen. And his followers did what he told them to do. Behave in a way that's, what's the word? Deplorable. One of these domestic terrorists even broke into Speaker Pelosi's office and put his feet up on her desk. They now live in an alternate universe that is now collapsing in on itself. It, 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 it's, it's like a black hole of whiteness. And this was never some sort of peaceful protest. This was Charlottesville come home to roost. Oh, it's shocking. These are domestic terrorists. Stephen Colbert, in what the literary community refers to as foreshadowing, described his own coup. And yet Stephen Colbert somehow still has access to the airwaves and to digital media spreading his hate unfettered, convincing future generations of insurrections to do what his team of saboteurs did last week. That must stop. People who plan coups must be silenced. There's recent precedent for that, and anyone who disagrees should be disconnected from Amazon Web Services immediately. No spreading hate. But stopping white extremist Stephen Colbert from passing on his message of insurrection to the country won't solve what the rest of us are living with, and that's trauma. And like all trauma, journalists are affected most profoundly. We're scarred by what we saw. We're all Casey Hunt tonight. It'll be a long time before we can revisit the Capitol building, before we can forget where we were when democracy shook on its very foundations. It's gonna take therapy, it's gonna take a lot of support from our fellow survivors, before we can recapture the carefree innocence that Stephen Colbert stole from us, before we can feel safe again. We're not alone in our despair tonight. Lies that would bring thousands of angry people to the Capitol for one of America's darkest days became one of the darkest days in American political history. The very next day was one of the darkest days in this nation's history. To one of the most dramatic and dark days in American history. One of the darkest days in U.S. history. This was one of the darkest days in American history. What size bottle of bourbon do you drink at night to forget your central role in the darkest day in our capital's history? Yeah, yeah. Journalists feel this stuff deeply. People say, oh, you're just robots, just automatons, inert, hardened, callous to the news. You don't feel. But we do. We do feel. You see something like that? You see an insurrection take place before your very eyes? And it hurts you. It changes you. You're not the same person. How long will it take to, to heal? It's impossible to know. CNN just interviewed a Rolling Stone journalist who, after a year and a half after the last insurrection, still hasn't healed. Watch. Grace, you wrote for Pointer at the end of January last year. You said, sometimes I'm fine. Sometimes I want to sob for hours. Sometimes I just want to sleep. So that sounds to me like trauma. That sounds like PTSD. Do, do you feel like you still experience that? I do think so, to a certain extent. This morning, when I got on the train to come down here and see you, Brian, I was looking at the Capitol Dome. Right. And 
you know, my parents recently came down to visit me, and we were near it, and I remember thinking to myself, man, I can't wait until I can look at this and not feel sad. Now, you look at something like that, and you're tempted to dismiss it out of hand. Oh, you're having trouble sleeping? You sob for no reason? Well, that's because you have a barren personal life. You're celibate. Your only meaningful human contact comes from the Uber Eats guy. You live out your emotional life on Netflix. That's your core problem. It couldn't really be an insurrection that made you cry. Sorry, excuse me. Sorry, stop. Or disrupted your sleep. But it can. For a journalist, this stuff hurts. But if you think it's bad for us in the news media, what do you think it was like for the lawmakers who were trapped inside Thursday night? In the last insurrection, even though she was nowhere near the Capitol, Probably getting her nails done, but it didn't matter. Sandy Cortez nearly died. Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez has given a harrowing account of her experience on January 6th. A harrowing and emotional account of what happened to her during the Capitol riot. It's one of the most harrowing accounts so far. Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, tell that harrowing story. The harrowing story of how she hid from attackers during the Capitol riot. Disclosing new harrowing details. Boom, boom, boom. That's what an insurrection looks like. But there's no charade-like miming that can ever fully express the pain inside. We're going to deal with that in our quiet alone time, possibly wearing an upscale turtleneck. We'll let you know. But the question is, once we've had an active war like this, how does the country respond? How do we all respond? Boom, 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 as Sandy would say. Well, obviously, we need a commission, of course, and a criminal investigation. There's probably one underway, by the way, and then a day of remembrance because you can't let the memory die. So who's going to lead this? Well, the obvious candidates, Liz Cheney, Adam Schiff, and speaking of crying, Adam Kinsinger. They're the naturals. We called them today to see what they're planning. How are we going to commemorate this latest insurrection? They haven't gotten back to us yet, probably sleeping or weeping. But we can assume from past experience that Adam Kinziger feels this really deeply, really deeply. Watch. Talk about the impact of that day. But you guys won. You guys held. You know, democracies are not defined by our bad days. Yeah. Adam Kinzinger's right. And we've made fun of him in the past, like a grown dude crying on TV. We mocked that. We apologize, Adam Kinzinger. We can recover. But there's really only one path toward recovery. And if you talk to any recovery expert, they will tell you the way to recover is to viciously punish the people who hurt your feelings. Step one. That's always step one. So we're going to have to mete out some pretty serious punishment. Stevens Colbert's team of insurrectionists have been jailed for one night. That's not a lot. The penalty for insurrection is death. We're not calling for that here. This is a moderate show. These are our fellow Americans. We owe them a second chance. Thankfully, there's recent precedent to help guide unappropriate punishment. What is the right punishment for insurrection? Well, Julie Kelly, for the last year and a half, has been following this very closely. She's the author of January 6th, how the Democrats used the Capitol protest to launch a war on terror against the political right. She joins us tonight to explain what we do with insurrectionists in this country. Now, Stephen Colbert's coup plotters, 
apparently spent the night in the clink. One night. Is that adequate based on recent precedent in insurrections? It absolutely is not. And the fact that these insurrectionists are just running free around yeah. L.A. or wherever they are, I mean, they, yeah. they are terrorists. They really threaten our national security. I'm literally, and, and literally, literally shaking. Literally Stay shaking. Really I mean, literally. I spent all week on Tucker trying to explain to my children what the pre-June 16 America looked like. I know. And they, know. Don't, they don't even remember it. Um, so that, you know, that's just going to be our burden, trying to, you know, make history uh, memorable <laughs> so, to, to, to future generations. <laughs> that is so good. How, I have to pause and laugh. I'm sorry. I broke character. Excuse me. That is that is fantastic. But can we just let, let's just say for the sake, just in case we're arguing like, you know, a pre Biden America where justice was pretty much meted out equally. What punishment based on very recent precedent would Stephen Colbert's insurrectionist face? <clears throat> well, first, it would be the felony charge that is most commonly applied to January 6th protesters, and that is obstruction of an official proceeding. I mean, these insurrectionists went to the January 6th committee hearing. They were prohibited from being there because they had already been denied special press credentials. Of course, they're not media. They're not entertainers, Tucker. They are Democrat Party activists. That's correct. They are no different than any of the people who were there on January 6th. I mean, Stephen Colbert is a Democrat party loyalist. He spends his entire show beating up on Trump and Republicans. So they were there as activists. So they they could have actually shut down this committee. Um, and so think about that. Think of the horde. Think of Liz Cheney's face. If the puppet dog guy um, caused her committee to pause, I mean, that is it's just beyond the pale. And so they definitely need to be arrested charged with obstruction of an official proceeding, um, sent to jail, pretrial detention. Um, so that that's just the first step. And then there are several other uh, misdemeanors that should be applied to them as well. Yeah, and then they can spend a year and a half in solitary confinement, pre-charge right. in the D.C. jail, the worst jail in America. Mm -hmm. the I'm trying not to use profanity. The fact that's happening right now and no one's saying anything about it is just unbelievable. You are, though, and we're grateful for that. Julie Kelly, thank you. Thanks, Tucker. Well, speaking of the evaporation of Community. your rights, U.S. senators in both parties, amazingly, because that's why you vote Republican, to eliminate the Bill of Rights, are working on legislation that would that allow the overnight. police to seize firearms for people who have not even been charged with anything. Now, we could have the text of the legislation as soon as tonight. Several Republicans, including notably John Cornyn of Texas, who suddenly supports every bad idea, are driving this. So the Senate could pass that bill within the next couple of weeks. Josh Hawley represents Missouri in the Senate. He joins us tonight. Senator, thanks so much for coming on. So the I got to say, I'm pretty shocked at the amount of violence going on on Juneteenth, this sacred holiday. It's really the, the whole essence of what it means to be an American is to kind of sit in awe and, and to ponder the implications of, of Juneteenth. And yet, I mean, let's just say that opening day at the new Floyd Land theme park in uh, Minneapolis didn't, didn't seem to go so well.
guess there's no way to remember George Floyd. I mean, George Floyd would be absolutely appalled at this kind of violence. Wow. What else is going on in Night in the streets of Washington, D.C. At a Juneteenth festival when gunfire erupted. And this morning... Whoa! Gunfire erupting at a Juneteenth festival? I'm shocked. The suspect is still at large. Mary Alice Parks has the latest from D.C. Good morning, Mary Alice. Wait, wait, does he have a lisp? I think he's got a lisp. Michael, good morning. It was Not one of those summer nights where everyone was out and about trying to enjoy the weather. And then all of a sudden, police rushing in Shocking. from every direction to this area that was just Gosh. packed with people. Awful. This is absolutely Overnight, unimaginable. Chaos and panic in the streets of D.C. after gunfire erupted at no. a packed Juneteenth concert and festival. Whoa. Like every single, I got to say, every single Juneteenth festival that I've been to has been mostly peaceful. There are always a few bad apples who start shooting people, but mostly peaceful. And this is really not in harmony with the whole ethos of Juneteenth. They say the unauthorized event was being shut down after a series of fights and issues with the massive crowd. First tonight, breaking news. D.C. law enforcement sources are confirming several people were shot, including a police officer. All of this happening near 14th and U Streets in Northwest. And we now know a 15-year-old boy was shot and killed as well. Fox 5's Lindsay Watts is on the scene. Lindsay, what's the latest? Tisha, we got this sad news from police that a 15-year-old boy was shot and killed. Two adults were shot and injured, and a D.C. police officer also shot and injured. This happened. This is no way to celebrate Juneteenth. African American culture. A local church brought Richmonders together today for an early Juneteenth celebration. The event was held at Providence United Methodist Church, and it showcased creators from local Black-owned businesses. Health services were also available at the event, including COVID-19 vaccines. Also, local police officers taught kids how to dial 911 in an emergency. We want to make people aware of what Juneteenth is. Because of everything that's been going on in our communities, we needed the high energy. We needed to lighten the mood. Um, I think it's good to see people join together and have fun in light of all the violence and everything. And we have we have education on that as well. We have uh, information at our tables about what we're our goal for our communities. Juneteenth is celebrated annually on June 19th. That marks the freeing of the last African-Americans who were enslaved in Texas in June of 1865. It was officially made a federal holiday in 2021. Pretty, I saw that already. Seated the homicide rate of where we were last we year. And that team. is unacceptable. Ceasefire. Tonight, Columbus community leaders are calling for a ceasefire on Juneteenth to address the city's rise in gun violence. Thanks for joining us for NBC4 at 11. I'm Jennifer Bullock. NBC4's Jonathan Jackson spoke with those leaders. And Jonathan, what was their message throughout all of this? We need peace love radical inclusion. Well, Jennifer, to put it simply, their message was to plea for peace for community members to put down the guns and one. Come on, guys. Can't we just all get along? I mean, it's Juneteenth. If there's anything that unites America, it's it's Juneteenth. I mean, all Americans can. I don't know. I just feel like we should all be coming together on this day. And all this violence is just not in keeping with the true spirit of the holiday. Like, 
people have lost the damn plot. Come on, guys. Can't we all just get along? Right. This is the end of episode three, Web of Make-Believe, Death, Lies, and the Internet, about Samantha Froelich, who got sucked into the scary world of Identity Europa. Saved me and really helped me gain perspective in realizing that, like, it is possible to regain life. It is possible to live a life after hate. have a conversation about race in this country where well, we can't because because you're too cowardly america's too cowardly to have an honest conversation about race and i really had to learn to swallow my pride and dismantle my ego and this story i was telling myself about myself and about the world and about the people that i meet and i they'll just be celebrating juneteenth yo i had to relearn the good and I had to relearn the bad get their lives and I together. felt like I was supposed to do something you gotta give back thank god she stepped up November 2021 the white nationalists and neo-nazis organized Charlottesville to rally face charges charges in federal civil court no. there was a Really, charges? There was a civil case, but thank God, Samantha, Samantha became a key witness. witness testimony. Samantha f appeared in a video Samantha of deposition. She was a member of Identity Europa for about a year and a half or November a year 2nd. and left in November of 2017. She said she heard the group's founder, Eli Mosley, and alt-right leader boyfriend. Richard Spencer discuss violence in the rally before the rally. Oh, so... Does that mean if they said we need to be prepared for Antifa to commit acts of violence, I guess that would still constitute discussing violence, right? Was it who was it that said who was the boxer who said that your best laid plans kind of go out the window once you get punched in the face? Mike Tyson, I think he said that. James Fields see back-to-back uh, life sentences for killing another higher. We are in an informational crisis that is destroying us. Guys, did you know we're in an informational crisis that's destroying us? Wow. No. We're not in an informational crisis, and whatever problems we have with information, it's not destroying us. We have access to more information than ever before, but we wouldn't be here if we evolved to be as gullible as Andrew Morantz thinks, right? The reason that we have a monster inside is because it's evolutionarily adaptive. You need to have a monster inside because some situations that you will encounter are monstrous and only a monster reaction will be appropriate and enable you to pass your genes on to the next generation. Right? If we were as stupid and gullible as Andrew Morantz argues, we wouldn't be here. We would have died out. We couldn't survive if we just believe every damn thing we're told. It's unraveling our democracy. It's making normal people unable to... Our democracy, guys. Our democracy is unraveling because of misinformation. Divine the truth is making it impossible to communicate. There's a very deep resistance on the internet. If only we had more censorship, people would be able to communicate so much better. They'd just know what was appropriate to communicate. Boundary setting of any kind. The worst thing you can do is put any kind of speech off limits. They're very aware of the slippery slope argument of, well, if a moderator in this one forum tells me to stop posting swastikas in the chat, that'll immediately lead to the American government jailing dissidents. 
But I feel like people are much less attentive to the slippery slope of, well, if you let Nazis take over the internet, what happens next? Yeah, Nazis are taking over the internet, guys. Nazis just taking over. Then they run Facebook, Google. Well, uh, they, they run all the big tech companies, don't they? I mean, Nazis have absolutely taken control of the internet. My God, we, we need to do something about this. This is just the worst the thing ever. The biggest platforms in the world. They're we we got we to gotta stop Nazis. If you allow the, the worst people in the world to have unrestrained abilities to hijack the... Wait, I thought communists were the worst people in the world. Are they hijacking our conversation? biggest platforms in the world, there are going to be huge consequences to that. But there won't be huge consequences if we censor, if we shut people down, if we take away people's rights to freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, freedom to practice their religion. There won't be any consequences to that. There'll only be consequences if we allow a free market in ideas. We just absolutely can't have a free market in ideas. Because if we have a free market in ideas, then Andrew Morantz's ideas may not win. And that that would threaten our democracy. Our whole civilization would unravel if Andrew Morantz's ideas weren't accorded sacred sacredness. We'll just have more January 6th. I mean, our democracy is at Images risk, of guys. the violent and oh. deadly protest in Charlottesville, Virginia, once again making headlines after a similar event at our nation's capital. Bring the traitors! The traitors! Bring them up! Yeah, name one country that has a better news media than we do, folks. Come on now. Name one country that has better Juneteenth celebrations. You don't like Juneteenth? Well, name one country that does it better, bro. We should get rid of all of them. This is our chance. Come on, guys. Don't you know that only the left has the right to get angry? Only the left gets What do you say to people who don't believe you? who just think you're being pragmatic. Name it. I don't want to be a monster. I don't want to be a monster. Well, guess what? There will be situations that will require you to be a monster. I don't want to be a monster either. But let me tell you, there are going to be times when you look up and you're going to see a face like mine looking down at you. I'm going to come back here a thousand times if I have to. But I think there's a monster in everybody. And that's for very good reasons, right? We will all encounter monstrous situations that will require a monstrous response, right? Most situations do not require a monstrous response, and a monstrous response in most normal situations will be maladaptive. But why do we all have a monster inside of us? Because we wouldn't be here if we... Our ancestors didn't have that monster. Without those those forebears, right? Those those hominoids that went before us who didn't have the monster inside of them, they died out. They couldn't survive, right? They didn't get to pass their genes on because they were wiped out. It's like Jews who wouldn't fight back on the Sabbath, right? Those Jews all died out. So Jews quickly learned that if your life's at stake, you fight back on the Sabbath. I think I still wrestle with it. To give those ideas merit and... There will never come a time when you don't wrestle with stuff. Right? There will never come a time when there isn't group conflict. Right? There will never come a time when people aren't struggling to rule over other people. So 
Richard Spence's speech was hyperbolic and it's amusing, but he's also touching on some, some basic aspects of existence, which we will never get to transcend. Like a fucking hundred times. I am so mad. All right. So why, why do we have anger, rage, resentment? Because it is adaptive in many circumstances. Our forebears who didn't have anger and didn't have rage, they didn't pass on their genes because they died out. There are some situations where anger and rage are necessary to get things done, right? If you can get something done immediately, take care of something right now, and anger and rage help you to do that, then anger and rage are adaptive. Now, still being angry and still stewing about things that you can't change or that happened long ago, obviously that's maladaptive anger. I am so fucking mad at these people. They don't do this to fucking me. So in some circumstances, getting yourself worked up like that before playing like a tackle football game or, or going into combat, that's adaptive. Most circumstances, it's maladaptive. We're going to fucking ritualistically humiliate them. So in most circumstances, when you ritualistically humiliate other people is maladaptive. In some circumstances, it's adaptive. It's the very best attitude to take. Very few circumstances, but yeah, sometimes but when you're fighting for your survival, yeah, you want that kind of anger and that kind of rage. I am coming back here every fucking weekend if I have to. Like, this is never over. No. I win. They fucking lose. Okay, so to get yourself hyped up in the moment, this, this is useful. In 99.99% of life, this is maladaptive, right? But we all have this Richard Spencer rant inside of us, right? We've all said things equally embarrassing. And, and we'll all face situations that will require us to bring out our monster. And it, it's ridiculous to, to want to remove the monster within. You just want to be able to control the monster within, right? You want to have emotional regulation, right? What does, what does, state, what does state regulation mean? That it means that you are able to control your emotions, that you're able to control your moods. That's how the world fucking works, little fucking kites. They get ruled by people like me. Little fucking <laughs> There are some circumstances where it's adaptive to have rage against outgroups. 99.9% .9 of the time in, a, in America today and in most first world industrialized nations, this kind of rage is not adaptive. In certain circumstances, this rage is adaptive. Having some in-group preference is adaptive. Being, you know, filled with hatred against all outgroups usually not adaptive. But for everything, there is a time and a season under heaven. I fucking, my ancestors fucking enslaved those pieces of fucking shit. Okay, so regarding outgroups as pieces of feces, sometimes it's adaptive, usually it's not. Like taking pride in your ancestors and how they enslaved other people, usually not terribly adaptive to give voice to that pride, but on occasion, it can rev you up to do what is necessary. Now, there are very few circumstances where it's adaptive to take the attitude that you rule the world. But maybe if you're going into a life and death struggle, that would be an adaptive response. Those pieces of shit get ruled by people like me. I had this girlfriend who was, was quite successful. She was a strong businesswoman, a terrific erotic photographer. 
but in the bedroom, she liked to be dominated. So she would plead with me to fuck her like a whore. Now, generally speaking, going through life with an attitude of, oh, please fuck me like a whore, that's not adaptive, right? That doesn't really serve you. It's not really a useful attitude in most circumstances. But in certain circumstances, such as in the bedroom, it's adaptive. It's useful. It worked for her. worked for me. It was just win-win. They look up and see a face like mine looking down at them. That's how the fucking world works. We are going to destroy this fucking... Okay, so an attitude, we're going to destroy this town. Uh, generally not adaptive, but in certain circumstances, such as war, it, uh, it works for you. To elect to live your life as if that's true and real, that's monstrous thinking. How was I not... Sometimes you need monstrous thinking because there are monstrous circumstances out there and everybody is monstrous in one situation or another so your spouse your your friend will, will turn into a monster in certain situations so sometimes you have to bring out your own monster to protect yourself aware enough to see that or was i aware enough and i just ignored it because i liked it too and i just i had the benefit every time you join a group you you connect and you, you build bonds, and these bonds, they, they, they bind you to others and they blind you, right? They bond and blind, to use Jonathan Haidt's terminology. So I don't want to live where I'm not enjoying bonds with other people. I, I don't want to live without community, but all forms of community blind you, right? So pretty much every strong in-group identity looks really weird to outsiders. And so... The healthy thing to pull off is while you're enjoying in-group identity, also occasionally think, oh, how does this look to outsiders? So keep, keep a foot in both camps, both enjoying the in-group identity, but also stepping out of your in-group identity and just reflecting, how does this look to outsiders? And how will my words and my deeds come across to people who are not members of my in-group? of not having to vocalize it or say these things because I had a mouthpiece who would do it for me. So I could just strap on in the passenger seat and say, I'm not the one driving. I'm just here along for the ride. You know, was I, was I the victim or was I also a villain? Right. It sounds like the alcoholic family where different people play different roles or every family. Like there's often like the, the favored child, the, the rebel, the, uh, the alcoholic father, the workaholic mother. I spent a lot of time really trying to understand that part. And I, I think in some ways I was both. And I just, I just try every day now to be neither. Okay, that's a new series on Netflix, Web of Make-Believe. So I wonder what Tucker Carlson is talking about. Is he going to bring up the, the tough questions about Juneteenth? So today is a federal holiday celebrating Juneteenth. Now, you may be confused as to what Juneteenth is. 
A lot of people were under the impression that it was a day to celebrate emancipation from slavery, in which case it would be a great thing, and we would call it Emancipation Day, and we would venerate Abraham Lincoln, who is responsible for emancipation, and was in fact killed for it. He was a civil rights martyr, if there ever was one, Abraham Lincoln. And yet at the same time we're celebrating Juneteenth, they're tearing down Lincoln statues. So what is this really about, actually? Well, in New Orleans, city leaders just unveiled a two-story high black power hair pick in Lafayette Square. That doesn't make the city safer. It also doesn't bring the city together, does it? In Washington, D.C., a 15-year-old boy was just shot to death at a Juneteenth event in Northwest D.C. Here's what it looks like. On Juneteenth, as you can see, since Mochella ended early, huh? There they go, look. Now they shooting. Now they shooting, look. Jason Whitlock is the host of Fearless, and he is, in fact, fearless. He joins us tonight. Jason, thanks so much for coming on. I think most people, very much including me, would be strongly in favor of a day to celebrate emancipation from slavery. That doesn't seem like what this is. No, it's not that. And look, Tucker, let's just be all the way honest. This is George Floyd Day. Juneteenth would not be a national holiday if not for George Floyd. And so that's what this is really about. It's more about racial division. Look, I'm like you. The Emancipation Proclamation, obviously being an African-American, huge day. The entire year of 1865 should be celebrated. America rededicated itself to its best ideals. Men, Union soldiers made enormous sacrifices for their belief in equality and the freedom of other men who didn't look like them. That's all very worthy of being celebrated. But that's not what we're doing with Juneteenth. And and we actually we obviously know that it's a byproduct of a summer of riots from 2020 over George Floyd's tragic death. Uh, but but I, I don't want to celebrate George Floyd. I feel sorry for George Floyd. He is a victim of his own mistakes and the mistakes of Derek Chauvin, but he's not worthy of celebration. He's not worthy of a national holiday in his memory. The events of 1865, the sacrifices that people made uh, during that time frame, all worthy of celebration. I wish we were doing that. I, I call it America's resurrection. It's rebirth. It's, it's nearly as important as 1776, and we should celebrate yes. that and it should be very unifying. But that's not what we're doing. So how can people, the same people who are pushing for Juneteenth also excuse the toppling of Abraham Lincoln statues? I mean, Lincoln was the, the guy well, who died for this, right? One of many, but one for sure. Look, it, it speaks to the, the real agenda behind Juneteenth. It's about racial division. Look, yeah. a, a black female mayor in New Orleans, that's a major city, had a monument built that was allegedly in honor of Juneteenth and in honor of black people's accomplishments in America. And it's an Afro pick with a black fist. As it, so we have a black political figure who doesn't know how to properly honor black people and who exactly. does something this shallow. It tells you how shallow this entire movement is. If an Afro pick designed, paid for, promoted by a black politician, uh, a Democrat politician, uh, if that is, is a symbol of our progress and freedom and accomplishment, I... Uh, look, a white mayor that did this would be recalled and would be trashed yeah. all over television and every place else. But, you know, nothing to see here. Juneteenth has been turned into a joke. And, and we've 
de-emphasized, diminished, a very important year in American history that we can all learn from and be proud of, but we've gone a different route. Yeah, it's a humiliation ritual, obviously. So depressing. Jason Miller, thank you. Thanks, Jason. Really appreciate you coming by. All right, let's talk about the subject topic, virility, strength, and being right-wing. So virility is a word that comes from the 1500s, it turns out, and it means manhood or masculinity. And the antonym or opposite of that is womanhood or femininity. So I want us to think about virility today, not as strictly a masculine precept or concept that we often think of when it comes to sex and sexuality, but to think about virility as a life force, as an energy as we go forward. So virility is, as I get, as I said, a word that we connote with um, power and strength, but vitality means lively or animated and physical or mental vigor. So these two words are sort of kissing cousins, as it were. They're very, very close in proximity, although they are different. And so I want to think about them somewhat synonymously as we think about this issue of virility today. So the quote from today from James Macefield, actually not from today, but from the entry in Mirror of Intimacy, is sex ran in him like the sea. Sex ran in him like the sea, which is a really powerful, simple statement, simple sentence. So what does it mean to have something run through us as big as the sea, as vast as the ocean? That's an enormous amount of energy. And when I um, think about how awestruck we are when we... Um, feel the virility of nature, for example, when it's unimpeded like an ocean or a ranging river, we really can feel the depth and breadth of our own power. And I distinctly remember being on the big island of Hawaii um, years and years ago, standing um, above Waipio Valley. And it's a deep, deep valley for those of you that don't know. And it's extraordinary. It's really an extraordinary valley that's cut right into the side of this island. And I remember standing there and in that moment I had a flash and of recognition that the strength and the power and the beauty of that valley was my own strength and power and beauty. And it hit me like a ton of bricks, as it were. And I would imagine many of you, if not all of you, have had some sort of experience like that where nature just smacked you in the face, where in that moment you had an experience of being one with all of consciousness, all of nature, all of awareness, all of God, if you will, and recognizing that as your own true self. And when you can see your vastness, your beauty, your power, your abundance, your spectacularness in nature reflected back at you, then you can start to get up above the small contracted self that often tells us stories that aren't true about ourselves, about not being vital, not being good enough, etc. So when we start to understand virility as a natural living power, a power that's inside all of us, we will start to feel more forceful, more hardy, more virile, if you will. I don't know about you when I want to feel virile. I think about Leah Thomas. I mean, there is a virility hero. So the world body that governs swimming, it's called FINA, has finally banned men from competing in women's swimming events. Took a while, but there's a catch. The new rule applies only to men who started their, quote, transition to womanhood, as if that's possible, after the age of 12. So in other words, if parents decide to chemically castrate a male child at a young age, then the body will allow that man to compete against women when they get older. Huh, what effect is this gonna have? Well, Riley Gaines has thought a lot about it. Riley Gaines is an NCAA swimmer from against Leah Thomas. She joins us tonight. Riley, thanks so much for coming on. So you've been almost single-handedly bringing this topic to public attention. Many of your fellow swimmers are embarrassed, so thank you for doing it again. How, how do you feel about this ruling? 
Uh, I definitely think it's a step in the right direction. Um, it's a bold first step. Obviously, it's not everything. We need more organizations um, across a bunch of different sports to comply as well. But I think it's a very bold first step, and I think it's something we're celebrating. Does that view reflect that of people you swim with? Do other swimmers feel that? I mean, you okay. Let's get back to the real talk here on virility. So think about a time when you have felt this way. Um, was it in nature? Was it with another person? Uh, was it when you were rafting down the Colorado River or hiking a mountain that you didn't think you could quite make? Right. Please share in the chat when you last had this tremendous surge of virility. Um, the hits of life, if you will, without being destroyed or feeling that they're worthless or nothing. And so if you didn't have that kind of childhood, if you were shamed chronically, if your virility and vitality... Please, please share in the chat if, if you were shamed in childhood and, and if you carry that shame with you. Did, did you have an Uncle Wally or a rambunctious raccoon or, or kangaroo in your childhood that produced a feeling of shame? That you were stolen from you, then that's going to require an enormous amount of work from you in your own therapeutic processes. And uh, please share with us if you're ready to do the work. Um, individual therapy, perhaps if there's a 12-step meeting that's appropriate for you, um, group therapy, any kind of work that you can do on your own path of personal growth and awareness to restore that inherent power and strength. Um, I think what we see a lot today is we see a lot of people, uh, whether in, they're in gangs or they are joining conspiracy theory groups, it's because they're feeling so disenfranchised, so isolated, so alone. So is that why you've joined a gang or taken on conspiracy theories because you feel so isolated and shamed and lacking in virility? Lacking in a sense of aliveness. So she gave this seminar February 5 of 2021. And with that can come a victimhood, a blaming of the other, whether it's blaming the system or blaming the government or blaming aliens um, or blaming, you know, our parents. Um, and Are you blaming elites, bro? You blaming aliens? You blaming the news media? You blaming our educational industrial complex? Come on, bro. That's not a, a path to virility. Instead of really recognizing that, yes, I've been wounded. I've been hurt. This is a safe space where we can talk about our wounds. We can talk about feeling hurt. We can talk about being molested. We can talk about being humiliated. We can talk about being sodomized. This is a safe space, right? If you've been raped, this is the place, this is the time to share. Whether I've been hurt by, um, you know, some other forces outside of myself or some other persons, but at some point I have to take responsibility for myself. I have to. So V who says this is torture, well, it's torture because it's making him do battle with the shaming things that happened to him in childhood. How, how he felt smothered by various women when, when he was just a little boy and how they made him feel ashamed for his erections. Step out of the shame and into the light and into the love, bro. To get myself help, I have to do what's right for me in order to start finding my way back to myself. Because isn't that what everyone is looking for when we talk about going home? We're really talking about a homecoming to our very self, a homecoming to... Are you ready to come home to your true self, right? Are you ready to celebrate a real homecoming? A sense of integration, a feeling of really, really being one with ourselves and one with nature and ultimately one. Well, since I started playing this video, my viewers have gone up from nine to 15. One with the universe, but being angry and really um, that anger has us sitting in a place of being a victim. 
where it's somebody. Are you sitting in a place of being a victim? The globalist elites, the Jews, Black Lives Matter, the, the news media, are they making you feel victimized and ashamed? Are they making you feel small? Else's fault and someone else is doing it to me is quite depleting. And then what happens is that there's a false. Yes, I did encounter a crack whore one, one Shabbos morning, and she was not very far along. So she was kind of pushing a prayer with all her belongings. And, I mean, she looked an absolute mess, but she still had all her teeth. I mean, if I could have just like washed her up and, and put a nice dress on her, she, I mean, she would have looked great. So she was just early on in her crack whoredom. And, and I wanted to reach out. I, I wanted to be of service. I, I just wanted to help. But I just let her push her pram and take her crack journey wherever it leads. I wish I could share this video with her. Power that gets adopted, um, whether it's wielding guns or clubs or hassling other people or threatening other people. Is that how you're getting your virility? By wielding guns or clubs and threatening other people? Um, or, you know, assaulting um, our nation's capital or burning down businesses. None of it really is a real power because ultimately we're hurting ourselves. You know, if you kill someone else, you're essentially killing yourself. So being mindful that these external shows of might does not make it right. It actually. Yeah, being a keyboard warrior is not going to fix the, the pain and the shame inside, right? Keyboard warriordom is not the path to healing from childhood trauma makes us weaker and harder because we have more resentments and more judgments and we ultimately end up with a lot of self-loathing and hurting ourselves so think seriously about your own woundedness about how to start to cultivate a real sense of vitality and virility from within which might mean your heart has to break open it means you have right so how do you cultivate virility from within open question feel free to share to be vulnerable it means you have to be willing to say I was wrong or what I was thinking was not right. Um, or I'm just so scared because I feel so alone and I feel like nobody cares about me. And that's the beginning of healing these deep, deep wounds um, about being lost and scared and alone. And often with that shame in childhood comes negative body image, um, a feeling of an exaggerated sense of imperfection, which pervades our culture. Uh, where, you know, women think they're ugly or they're fat or their part of their body's not big enough or it's too big. And uh, likewise with men, there's an anxiety over sexual aptitude, an anxiety over penis size or height or any number of other measures that really are being measured against external ideals of what's right and what's wrong versus a sense of gratitude, deep gratitude for yourself, for what you do have, for the body parts that you possess, for the fact that you're healthy. And if you're lucky, you're not sick with COVID right now, or worse yet, someone you love hasn't died from it. Um, to really look at the negative body image that you have and ask yourself, where is this coming from? Who installed this in me? And what things do I do to continue to perpetrate those lies? So what are you doing to continue to perpetrate those lies that are contributing to your negative body image? So you've heard a lot about systemic racism, and some of us have laughed on it, but actually, if you take three steps back, it's completely real. Major corporations in this company, the big ones, Shell, Morgan Stanley, Apple, all of them basically, have decided to implement hiring practices based on skin color. Now, these are not only a violation of the American ideal, which is expressed quite eloquently at the Martin Luther King Monument on the Mall. It's also illegal. You can't do this, and yet it's happening everywhere. You probably know a lot of people have been affected by it. So what can we do about this? What can employees do when they've been discriminated against on the base of their skin color? 
What falls to Stephen Miller to fix it? He's a former senior advisor of President Trump, and he's got a new way to fight back. He joins us tonight to announce it. Stephen Miller, thanks so much for Thank doing you. this. I don't know why no Thank one you. else is. I'm grateful you are. Tell us what you're doing and why. It's an honor to be here. I've done a number of interviews. I think this is the most important announcement that I've ever made on your program, Tucker. We are launching a new initiative in my legal foundation known as the Center for Legal Equality. And we will provide free legal representation to any client we take who has been denied a job, a promotion, a benefit because of their skin color. Companies, particularly the largest companies in this country, have embedded systemic racism into their operation. As one example, Morgan Stanley has an internship for college students that explicitly says this is the path, this is the ladder to get you a career in finance. One catch, though, you can't be white, you can't be Asian, and it might also help if you're LGBTQ+. Companies across America have identical policies to these. They are illegal. They are immoral. They are racist. They are bigoted. They're poison that hurts everyone on every side of the equation. And the only way to stop them is in federal court. So we're creating a hotline. You can go to it at aflegal.org slash hotline. That's aflegal.org slash hotline. And tell us what happened to you or your friend. Our attorneys will reach out. And again, any client we take, we will fight these woke corporations 100% for free. You will never pay a dime. That's amazing. So why isn't anyone else noting that civil rights law explicitly forbids private sector employers from making hiring or promotion decisions based on race? There's no gray area in this. It is flat out illegal. Why is nobody else suing? I'm, I'm shocked at the dearth the radical absence of lawsuits that have allowed this to perpetuate, to become a cancer, replete through our entire corporate and financial system. I suspect it's fear more than anything else. People are afraid of coming out and saying, no, you cannot discriminate against somebody because they're Asian or because they're white or because they're Jewish or because they're straight or because they're Christian. Of course you can. It's absolutely illegal and unconstitutional, and I'll see you in court. So I'm saying it. Tonight on your program, aflegal.org slash hotline. Tell us your story. Help us fight back for you. Amazing. Stephen Miller, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Thank Stephen. Thank you so much. Thank you so, so much. So there was just a special election in Texas in the Rio Grande Valley, and a Republican won it for the first time since 1871. And the question is, why? And the answer seems to be pretty clear, border security. So for most Americans, no matter what they look like, what language they speak, no matter what party they belong to, what's happening at our border is an atrocity. Yes, Lee Vega is a person who feels that way. She was born to Salvadoran immigrants. She went on to become a law enforcement officer in Virginia. She's now running for Congress in that state. She joins us tonight. Yes, Lee Vega, thanks for coming on tonight. Really appreciate it. Um, tell us, it, it's interesting. I mean, your candidacy makes sense, I think, to people who've been following this, to a lot of people. They're confused. Tell us why you're moved to run for Congress. Well, Tucker, it's a pleasure to be with you on tonight. You know, I became a police officer because of an incident uh, that almost took the life of my younger brother. Uh, he was viciously gunned down and nearly killed by MS-13 savages. So when I talk about the border crisis, when I talk about crimes in our communities, for me, it absolutely is personal. I've been on the front lines as a law enforcement officer, and I've seen things that I never thought I would see, from the demonizing of the brave men and women in law enforcement, the cursing in public spaces. I mean, it's unbelievable. And all of this has been brought to the American people on a silver platter uh, by Joe Biden and his Democrat allies to include Abigail Spanberger. What's so interesting in your state, specifically Virginia, there was a governor's race two cycles ago in which the Republicans brought up the question of MS-13. And Nancy Pelosi leapt into that race and so did the entire Democratic Party to make the point that, no, Salvadorans love MS-13. How dare you criticize that? As someone whose family's from El Salvador, how do you respond to that? 
Well, that's another ignorant uh, comment coming out of Nancy Pelosi's mouth, and the American people are sick and tired. I would challenge her to come and sit down and speak to my parents what it was like uh, to wait for surgeons to come out of the uh, operating room to let us know whether or not my brother was going to survive that vicious attack. I will share with you, Tucker, that his best friend died at the age of 15 as a result of that gang initiation process. I grew up in a community where I saw MS-13 gang members trying to recruit elementary-aged children. And this is why I'm so passionate. This is why I'm running for office, because it's now or never. This is not the America that we know. This is not the America that we so very much love. And it's time that we stand up to the radical left and put an end to the chaos that they have caused. Okay. So speaking of virility, Michael Woodley, the, the scientist, is an example of completely lacking in virility. So he's been taking down all his rambunctious uh, appearances on Edward Dutton's show just because he was called out by the New York Times. So he's just gone into complete collapse. So the New York Times, remember, did this story, a racist researcher exposed by a mass shooting. Yeah, racist researcher. Because the, the Buffalo killer... He cited Michael Woodley. Well, he also cited the New York Times. He also cited a lot of uh, mainstream sources, but uh, they're, they're not being outed, right? They're, they're not being revealed by this mass killing, but somehow Michael Woodley is. But he has just absolutely collapsed. He didn't speak to the New York Times. He's not speaking up in his own behalf. He's just taking down everything that he can online that is politically incorrect. So completely lacking in courage, just doesn't have the right stuff. Edward Dutton talks about this. It was a conference, and then I have an email from a journalist from the New York Times who says he's doing an article about Michael Woodley, and he would like to interview me about it. And I, of course, uh, I didn't uh, get this till late. I didn't, it was in my junk bean box. I didn't get it till a bit later. And, of course, I wouldn't have given an interview anyway to these vile people. But it seems that the technical heretic, God bless him, has been uh, thoroughly cancelled. And so and in, in the most appalling way... And it reminds me of a, of a kind of gang warfare, really. Um, and if you're interested in reading about gang warfare, I, of course, did a, a book on, on gang warfare many years ago called The Rule of, the Rule of Cheshire, Sir Piers Dutton and Tudor Gangland Church, because that's what they have done. There is sun in the basement, Sisyphean Taskmaster. It's 10 past nine in Finland, it's northern Finland, it's the summer and it's not going to get dark. So it's, it's lighter here than usual. So, you, so, so those people, um, they, they need to be disempowered because, of course, they, by having everything is power for these people. There's no such thing as truth. Truth doesn't exist. Everything is a matter of power and prestige um, and, and, and their enemies cannot be allowed to have power, um, which they do by being members of their church, which they've completely made into a church, which is academia. Uh, and so therefore they have to be removed from it and they have to be purged. And that makes a great that makes a great um, a great deal of sense. But you, as I say, you can't really damage the big fish that much. There's not much you can do. So what you uh, what you what you do in gang warfare is you go for the the lesser members of the gang. You, now, why do you go for the lesser members of the gang? First of all, they're easier to knock off. They're less protected, whatever. So they're easier to attack than are the, uh, the, the, the 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 gang members that are higher up. Secondly, those people are the younger people are the potential um, next generation of leaders of the gang. So of course you knock those people out. They are the potential leaders. You you go for them. And thirdly. As a Machiavellian and as a person that's high in dark triad traits, I think you um, you spot weakness and you attack weakness you, and you attack signs of weakness. What, what you do is you, you kill those who can be killed in order to send a message to other members of the gang that this is what could happen to you. But of course, you're not going to go for people and, and get a fight and lose the fight. That would be utterly humiliating. So you go for people um, who are seen as weak uh, and those people you can completely, completely destroy. So we're talking about relatively young people uh, who, who therefore don't have that much influence and power like Noah Carl. Uh, and he was a particular problem because he actually had a job, um, a full-time job, at a very prestigious church, 
um, which was Cambridge University. Uh, at least Noah Carl didn't cock and bravely run away like Michael Woodley has. But uh, also what we have with Michael, clearly, is somebody that was prominent uh, a couple of years ago uh, in terms of being a... So Michael Woodley changed his name to Michael Woodley of Meany, right? He had pretensions of being an aristocrat, had these pretensions of being a brave truth seeker, and he did a lot of attention-seeking research and, and articles, but when the attention finally came, he just completely cucked, tried to take down absolutely everything he could. All the live streams he went on with people, he then begged them to take them down. Like he did, he went to archive.org and tried to remove all his appearances that were preserved on archive.org. He bravely, bravely ran away, ran, ran away. Brave Sir Michael Woodley, bravely ran away. A based academic and whatever, and then withdrew. And as far as I'm concerned, they would see that, and I'm sure they did see that as a show of weakness to withdraw, to say, oh, I, I, I've, I've been involved in public life in being a dissident academic. I've published these dissident papers and, uh, and, and so on. Um, and, uh, uh, and, uh, and, 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 now, and now I'm going to withdraw. So that's now the way that a reasonable person would interpret that would all just to be charitable about it and to say, OK, well, this, this person has been naughty, but now he's withdrawing. And so we'll let him have a quiet life. He's not a threat to us anymore. But the way you interpret it, if you are a predator that wants to bring down and you know, kill people and hurt people because you're basically sadistic, um, is that that is that is a show of weakness to withdraw. It's a show of weakness to remove all of your old technical heretic videos or all of your old live streams with me. Uh, it's a show of uh, and there's stuff online where he's asked people, for example, on archive.org to remove um, um, uh, old edition. Yeah, Michael Woodley is a very weak man. ...of the jolly heretic that he's in, and they would have read this. And so it's a show of weakness. It's showing that he, he wants, he, he doesn't want it anymore. He's, he's lost, the, as they see it, he's lost the spirit for the fight. So therefore, he's praying, and, 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 and getting him and bringing him down will satisfy them because it's hurting a person who, even though he's now backing off, um, at one point was prepared to challenge them and challenge their power and whatever. And so it's very satisfying, even though he's backed off to try and crush him. Um, and, and, and it acts, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, a fight which they can win and they can win publicly. Um, and therefore it's all the more of a salutatory, salutatory lesson to any young uh, academic who might consider getting involved uh, in this, um, you know, what I would call it truth seeking, others would call it this dissident angle of academia. So that's why I think um, that this, this was able to occur. Um, and uh, the other thing you have to understand about dark triad types, that site about uh, narcissists and psychopaths, they're opportunists. So, so it's, it's not that they, that they, they had Woodley in their crosshairs because he dared to challenge them, just as they have me or anybody else in their crosshairs. Um, and it's just, it's just an opportunity. It's, something was there. And somebody, I imagine, well, you can go, just look into Rational Wiki and whatever, and you'll find out what's going on. But somebody obviously went to a great deal of effort to go through that manifesto with a fine-tooth comb uh, and um, magnified in order, as, as, as you saw, uh, you'll have this obscure article. I, I mean, he, he obviously, uh, Michael, presumably he would have left uh, the Jolly Heretic because he didn't want to be, he didn't want this to happen. Um, that's clearly what was, you know, you, I'm sure, aware of what was going on. Um, and, uh, and, and then he writes this article in Medical Hypotheses. By the way, at that time, it was, it was uh, edited by Bruce Charlton. It wouldn't have been peer-reviewed. It was just editorially reviewed. Uh, and it was published. And it's that obscure article that had a particular graph in it. And that graph was, is all over the Internet. And it's been you know, used by HBD people to illustrate their points and whatever. Yeah, are humans polytropic? So, and the idea was to compare humans, a very um, technical paper, to compare humans to other animals and to basically see, do they have subspecies? If we're going to say, for consistency's sake, 
make, I mean, he didn't even use the term subspecies, of course. He was far too technical and nuanced to do anything like that. Um, he, he used whatever the obscure scientific word that he was that he used uh, back in a very old paper. And this was, this was on this, this graph that is flying around the HBD community. And what this shooter had done is presumably cut and pasted this graph from somewhere uh, where there was this citation. I doubt he even read, or I'm sure he wouldn't have read Michael's original paper. I'm sure the New York Times did the article, uh, didn't uh, uh, didn't read, uh, um, uh, perhaps when I come back from that London at the end of the week, Finber, um, uh, didn't uh, read the original paper, and you would have had to go through with a fine-tooth comb and find that citation. Because if you keyworded him or whatever, you wouldn't have found it. So it's almost like somebody was there looking to find uh, members of the London Conference on Intelligence or whatever were involved, and in a very obscure way, uh, they managed to find uh, what they wanted, um, and then they and then they got in touch with the relevant people to make a story out of it. Um, you'd have to enlarge it significantly to see the citation. That's how obscure it is. And then you get this appalling, vile man, Alex Massadval of the University of Bologna or whatever it was, coming up with this petition. Uh, I mean, it would, have, it would have helped his case if he wasn't so ridiculous, really, uh, arguing that um, the paper should be withdrawn, that, um, that, the, 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 that Michael's PhD should be withdrawn, which is unbelievable because his PhD is totally, un like most PhDs, if you're, if you're remotely sensible, your PhD will not be controversial. Your PhD, the purpose of it, is to play the game. No normal person is going to do a controversial doctoral thesis. So his doctoral thesis got nothing whatsoever to do with race research or anything that this guy might regard as problematic. It's on flies or something. So that's ridiculous. Um, and to argue that he should be stripped of his um, affiliation to this apparently prestigious Belgian university. Isn't that a contradiction in terms that something is prestigious and Belgian? Oh, disavow. Uh, you know, but anyway, no, of Belgium, course they have to hey. play it up and make it dramatic. And of course, I, I imagine, I mean, that's, that's, a, that's obviously going to happen. Hasn't he ever been to Bruges? Here, I mean, that, that's out. Um, but then also to argue that the journal Intelligence should be abolished by LCVA because it promotes this evil, wicked research. I mean, it's obviously an absolutely preposterous uh, thing to argue, and it was never going to happen. It was never going to go ahead. So this is a highly emotionally motivated young man. And the worst thing he said, he said was um, that he is questioning consensus based on decades of research, as though that's a, I mean, that was the wonderful thing. That was like the tell. That was the giveaway. As though, as though that's a bad thing. As though that's not what academics are supposed to do. The, 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 no, no, we have we have a consensus based on decades of research. You don't question it. That's not how it works. You don't do that. No, of course you don't do that. I mean, that just tells you the extent to which they have turned acad um, academia into a church that has dogmas, that it could even occur to somebody who is a PhD student or whatever he is uh, to say that he is questioning a consensus based on decades of research as though that is a problem, as though he shouldn't do that. When that is, as anyone that's read Thomas Kuhn and the, the scientific revolutions will tell you, that's how academia works. And of course, when the academics do question this, then they are persecuted and whatever, until the evidence of the wrongness of the current dogma is so manifest that then the whole system collapses and all these people that have invested their careers and their money and their everything um, in this, in, in, in you know, that thing, uh, then are in trouble and, and just die off one, one you know, basically the, that, that ideology dies off one, Okay, thank you, Edward Dutton. Wonder what Sean Hannity has to say. Come on, Sean. Literally, as it turns out, even long weekends at the beach are a struggle for poor Joey. Uh, on Saturday, as you probably know by now, the president fell yet again. This time he was unable to maintain his balance after leisurely taking a bike ride in Delaware with the First Lady. Uh, thankfully, with some help, some nice people around him, he was able to get back on his feet, and now he's okay.
This comes amid growing concerns from the Democrats and the left and even the New York Times about the president's mental and physical fitness, even fake news CNN. Now even some Democrats are questioning Biden's abilities and casting doubt on a second term, which he says he's going to run for. Of course, the White House is well aware of these concerns. And this weekend, in order to reassure you, the American people, they had the president perform a variety of, frankly, embarrassing political, physical acts. In other words, they put on a show, ultimately did more harm than good. For example, on Friday, Joe did his very best sprinting all the way out to Marine One. Good job, Joe. Then on Saturday, he suited up like a competitive cyclist, fell off his bicycle when it came to a stop. And on Sunday, he pretended to jump rope in front of the cameras. And it's kind of sad, deeply concerning. Uh, there he is, jumping rope. Good job, Joe. 79-year-old president uh, has been pretty much unable to stay upright. Now, remember, you know, this particular incident, remember the White House, they blamed the first major fall or three falls. It was a very windy day. I don't know what's worse, the fact that he fell three times or they're lying to us and said it was a windy day. That's probably why he fell. If he's that weak that the wind is blowing him over. Okay, there's a good article here by James Fulford on New York Times thugs trying to cancel Michael Woodley for reporting human diversity science, but the New York Times is guilty too. Good point. So New York Times is attempting to destroy the life of researcher Michael Woodley, and he is completely cocked, like he's completely given in to uh, the, the woke mob. Let's have a look here. But uh, New York Times has, has published a lot of pretty edgy things on race by their former science editor. So Woodley's research finds differences between races. He's obviously not responsible for being quoted by a stranger in another country, which he really wasn't. So how does a teenager who gets involved in high-level arguments about race and subspecies? Well, he doesn't. He just copies and pastes a common graphic he found on the internet called The Truth About Race. So this is the common graphic. It's not like uh, Michael Woodley just uh, led this guy into mass shooting. Right? This meme's been around since November 2017. So Virginia Commonwealth University Digital Sociology Review says this is a graphically unsophisticated infographic of unknown origin floating around online discussion boards and message forums usually as proof about the biological basis for race. Well, are the, the plain facts in this infographic true or false? It's probably the work of some human biodiversity enthusiast, probably an academic who posted it online anonymously to avoid it being canceled and who can blame the person the new york times is indeed now trying to cancel the one carefully targeted person who is cited in it michael woodley so myths in this infographic for which woodley deserves no blame come from science magazine race has no biological basis race is only skin deep according to evolutionary biology magazine races have more variation with them within them than between them genetics magazine and you've got an Italian anthropologist who says there isn't qualitative genetic evidence for racial differences. So Michael Woodley is featured in myth number six of eight. There isn't significant genetic differences between races. So the New York Times finds the shooter's manifesto online, which is not easy. And then they locate this graphic on page 17, which is about the least hateful material in the manifesto. Then they enlarge it until they can see the citations, and then they can ignore all the Chinese authors in an attempt to cancel Michael Woodley. 
So the New York Times says at the core of Mr. Woodley's article cited by the gunman is an argument that human beings can be scientifically divided into subspecies. One table in which he compared humans with a number of animal species, including jaguars and leopards, was used in the Buffalo Gunman's Manifesto. So why what the New York Times is linking to in its quote above is to Michael Woodley's article is Homo sapiens polytypic, human taxonomic diversity and its implications. So the, the actual table is a lot more sophisticated than this uh, infographic, but the New York Times won't go into that. It's a little too nuanced. So the New York Times carelessly referenced a simplified version for which Michael Woodley is obviously not responsible. Now you can't click on the New York Times links and learn about this because not only do the writers not link to the Shooter's Manifesto or the Michael Woodley quoting infographic, they link to a paywall version of Michael Woodley's article. Here's something else that the New York Times missed. It's on the very same page of the killer's PDF with an obscure reference to Michael Woodley's work, and it's here in this screenshot. Yes, the Buffalo Shooter linked to the New York Times. According to the New York Times, over 2,000 genes have been subject to recent post-out-of-Africa evolution. Europeans and Asians are subject to more recent evolution than Africans. So this is an article in the New York Times, Adventures in Very Recent Evolution by Nicholas Wade, New York Times, July 19, 2010. So maybe the Buffalo shooter was driven to his hateful deeds by New York Times reporting. So Nicholas Wade's reporting in the New York Times on human differences has been cited by Steve Saylor as long as go as 2003 as an example of how mainstream the science of human differences is. So Steve Saylor published in 2003, a couple of wild-eyed wackos, me and the New York Times. So the 2000 genes quote is a pretty good paraphrase of Nicholas Wade's 2010 article. Steve Saylor points out that Nicholas Wade has spent the last decade diligently debunking the reigning dumb ideas of our age, such as race doesn't exist, race is just skin deep, racial differences couldn't have evolved because there hasn't been enough time. And so Saylor's writing this in 2010. For the last 10 years, Nicholas Wade has used dozens of New York Times articles to aim a fire hose of the latest scientific findings at these dogmas. And as far as I can tell, nobody ever notices. So there's a lot more of the science of human biodiversity in the New York Times website in the archive of Nicholas Wade's articles. For example, Human Culture, an Evolutionary Manifesto. And there are other New York Times articles. Genome mappers navigate the tricky terrain of race. Study finds a genetic link between intelligence and size of some regions of the brain. Race is seen as a real guide to track roots of disease. A new look at old data may discredit a theory on race. The palate of humankind. Gene study identifies five main human populations and two scholarly articles diverge on role of race in medicine, all by Nicholas Wade. All right, this is the state of the science these days. And this is what the New York Times has been publishing for 20 years. Now, neither the New York Times nor Michael Woodley is in any way responsible for the Buffalo gunman quoting them. 
Michael Woodley has not stepped up. Here he was. Thank you for having time. me on your show, Stefan. So we had uh, Dr. Flynn, of course, recently uh, on the show, and he talked about the Flynn effect, right, which is a considerable increase in uh, IQ testing, uh, whether it's uh, G-loaded or not, we'll get to it in a second, but the, uh, the IQ testing seems to be going up, that people seem to be getting smarter. On the other hand, you and others have uncover uncovered some troubling reaction time information that might seem to indicate that there's a little bit of an undertow when it comes to human intelligence flourishing. I wonder if you could give people sort of an introduction to the landscape of where uh, IQ and uh, uh, human genetics are heading at the moment. Yes, certainly. Well, one of the um, big questions that has uh, dogged research on secular trends in human intelligence is what exactly is happening to intelligence over time? And for a long time, at the beginning of the 20th century, really starting the work of Sir Francis Galton in the 1860s, people thought that because there were negative associations between people's levels of cognitive ability and the numbers of offspring that they produced, this would necessarily entail a decrease in heritable general intelligence. And this was actually called Cattell's paradox, because uh, the, the fact that this wasn't observed in the data, rather, was called Cattell's paradox. Because Raymond Cattell, who was one of the uh, founders of modern psychometrics, he developed this distinction between fluid and crystallized intelligence, among other things. He's a very prominent psychometrician. He set out looking for evidence that IQ had actually declined due to this selection pressure. And he compared cohorts who took IQ tests in the 1930s with equivalently aged cohorts who took IQ tests in the 1950s. And what he found was quite stunning, actually. Instead of IQ dropping by about one point per decade, which is what he predicted in the 30s, he found that IQ had increased by about that much per decade. And he wasn't the only one. Uh, Sir Cyril Burt, uh, Macintosh, a couple of others found the same thing. Tuddenheim is another one. Uh, they all found this thing which is now called the Flynn effect, this ubiquitous increase in measured intelligence. That is to say, intelligence measured using pencil and paper type IQ tests. So. Believe it or not, this fact was actually forgotten. Um, people recognized that IQ certainly wasn't going down. They didn't know why it wasn't going down. There was much space. Just so uh, sad, Michael Woodley devoted his life to becoming famous. Like, he devoted his life to becoming noticed. Like, he screams, look at me, by changing his name to Michael Woodley of Meany. He goes on all these YouTube shows to promote his scholarship. And then when he gets his moment of fame, he runs away speculation and there seemed to be the sort of general acceptance that in some quarters it might be increasing but there was a lot of sort of I call it historical amnesia people weren't really interested in this too much and people kept independently rediscovering the effect over and over again and really it wasn't until the 1980s when James Flynn and also Richard Lynn he has to be given credit for this as well uh, Flynn and Lynn both bought large-scale attention to the effect with a series of publications showing how ubiquitous the effect was not just across time but across countries as well and it was on that basis that uh, Marion Herdstein of the bell curve chose to, uh, chose to name the effect the Flynn effect, as Flynn probably slightly more so than Richard Lynn, sorry Richard, um, actually, uh, actually uh, drew huge amounts of attention to the effect and gave it really wide-scale um, wide fame, essentially, and, and it's called the Flynn effect as a consequence. And sorry, just to, to give people the, that, that context, we kind of stated... So this is a conversation December 12, 2016, and Michael Woodley went on to do, what, over, over a dozen shows with with Ed Dutton, and, and do you think Ed Dutton would have wanted to do the shows if, if he'd known that Michael Woodley would check it out and then you know, demand that, that Ed would uh, remove the, the shows? Right? Like, where would Ed would go to the, to the time and the effort and the energy to make shows with Michael Woodley, only to have Michael Woodley bravely run away? I asked that earlier. Um, what has been shown repeatedly in studies around the world and across time is that more intelligent women have fewer children. 
And given, of course, that there is genetics involved, uh, 50 to 80%, depending on where in life you measure, that there's a lot of genetics involved in intelligence, the sort of three to 5,000 genes that tend to make up our capacity for human intelligence. Sm uh, smarter women having fewer children should have a dysgenic effect. And this is why the IQ decline was predicted. But on the other hand, boom, uh, it's rising up like a rocket. And that seems a paradoxical, of course. Yes, for a couple of recent meta-analyses, which show that the increase in IQ is on the order of three points per decade. And it's not just confined to specific measures of IQ, it's found across the board. So you have broad abilities like crystallized intelligence, which is your ability to accumulate and use knowledge, fluid intelligence, which is sort of raw abstract problem solving ability, uh, visuospatial ability, your ability to manipulate um, shapes and objects in two dimensions and three dimensions, that sort of thing. Yes, you find across these different measures, IQ is increasing, but across the board, full scale IQ, which sort of incorporates all of the above. So, I mean, what are the lessons to learn from the sad story of Michael Woodley? You have to think through the implications of what you're doing. When I wrote on the porn industry, a lot of people just turned their backs on me. It's, like, it's such a disgusting subject. You should not write about that. When I wrote about Dennis Prager, every friend I had in Los Angeles that I had in common with Dennis Prager, they all took, turned their back on me. So that's absolutely disgusting. You're, you're betraying Dennis Prager. Uh, every time I, I take you know a controversial position on on a live stream and and like do verbal combat I, i'm sure there, there are people who take offense and say ah, i'm just turning my back on your channel i'm never coming back here so don't step into the arena if you can't handle it if people turn their back on you so if you want to be the subject of attention and do all sorts of attention getting things like changing your name uh, pretending to be an aristocrat uh, choosing particularly controversial fields of research and then and then having online chats with, with the, the position that you're such a, a brave truth seeker and that you won't be intimidated from seeking the truth. And then you finally get a little bit of blowback and you turn tail and you take down everything you've done. It's, it's pathetic. So I launched uh, my, my blogging in, in July of 1997, and it took a big toll on, on my personal life. And I was intellectually ready for it, but I was not fully emotionally ready. It was, it was devastating. It was very painful. And so I ended up going into psychotherapy. So I had two psychotherapy sessions a week. I started going to a new synagogue because other synagogues I'd attended, they didn't, didn't want anything to do with me. I lost a lot of friends, but I was able to build up new friends, build up you know, the pleasures of unfettered communication because with every connection, it, it binds you and it blinds you. So when you lose connection, it's very painful, but then a whole world starts opening up for you that you were blind to before, right? We, we form these bonds and I, I, I venerate, respect people like Dennis Prager, who says he's gone his entire life and never lost a friend. So I think that's wonderful. But when you lose friends, when you lose community, when you lose connections, suddenly you may start looking at the world in new eyes and you will realize that you've been blind to a whole bunch of things because our connections do blind us. Now, I am not for like turning our back on connection. Like human connection makes life pleasurable. It also reduces pain. It makes life more exciting. It's definitely the way to go. But when you lose certain connections, then embrace the benefits that come from the opening of your eyes that accompanies those loss of connections. So when you feel like you've lost everything, 
No, there's just a whole new world out there for you to discover. When did Luke Ford go to the gypsy? Absolutely. I went to the gypsy when I lost all my friends. So when I was absolutely distraught and I'd broken my, my wrist playing, playing touch football, had to go to the hospital, had, had an operation. They put some, some steel in, in the wrist. So where, where is it? Oh, yeah. So they had to put some steel in it, steel plate to hold the wrist together. Then when I was coming out of the surgery, I had a mild panic attack. I mean, I just felt incredibly alone in the world. I just felt incredibly vulnerable because they're, they're wheeling me around as I'm, I'm coming out of the anesthesia. And I'd walk to the hospital and I was going to catch a taxi back. And they, they didn't want to release me. So they kept me in overnight. And a nurse gave me coffee and I wasn't used to coffee. So that gave me like a particularly jangly experience and I couldn't sleep. And uh, I just, it just felt so lost, so vulnerable, so small in a big world, so alone, so, so desperate. And I came out of that, finally, finally got released the next day, came home. They'd given me pain medication. So I went to pick up a prescription for pain medication, which I never ended up using. And as I'm standing there in line for my pain medication, there's this woman, a gypsy behind me, who says, oh, I'm getting a special feeling about you. Because I was so vulnerable and so alone, you know, I went with it and ended up visiting her about five times and uh, dropping about $900 on her. But at the same time, I was arranging for psychotherapy. And so, yeah, when you're lost and lonely, it's, it's not a good place to be. And uh, you, you may well make some stupid decisions, but uh, you'll make new friends. You'll make new connections. You'll have new experiences. You'll see things in, in a new way. So it's, it's a very mixed blessing. But what can you do? You have to... I spend more time on the positive, right? So there are all sorts of things that I could be unhappy about in, in my life. There are all sorts of things I could feel ashamed about in my life. There are things I could feel ridden with guilt about. There are like, opportunities that have eluded me. There are career failures, romantic failures, personal failures, communal failures, friendship failures. But I, I just prefer to spend my time feeling grateful and rejoicing in the good things that I do have. Plus some extra bits and pieces is showing this increase of three points per decade. I just want to make a point also, it's not just... Uh, it's not just intelligent women that are having fewer children. Intelligent men also, on average, have. No, that was not my first coffee, but I probably only had about six cups of coffee prior to being in the hospital there in 1999. So my first first coffee, you can see it in Apricot Sky, shot in 1995, but I probably had only maybe another six cups prior to coming out of surgery. And the nurse giving me coffee, which is an absolutely stupid thing to do, particularly in the evening, you don't want to be giving people coffee. Fewer children. It's just there is a sex difference in the strength of the correlation between IQ and fertility. Well, and of course, so, you know, for more intelligent people, when you have a free market and some political and economic liberties, you have the choice to, say, run a corporation or you can uh, read Itsy Bitsy Spider 400 times in a row. And so particularly when kids are young, it's not the most uh, intellectually stimulating environment. So there is, I think, that tendency to say, well, I'm going to go and spread my intellectual wings in the market or in academia or in the media and so on, rather than uh, stay home. The opportunities are that much greater to exercise your intelligence, at least when kids are young, out in the market than it is at home. And I think you're right. Yeah, it's both males and females who will uh, be hesitant to uh, invest those kinds of resources. 
Yes, it's not just IQ tests, which inversely. So when the world is falling down around you, what can you do to regulate your emotional states? I like this little conversation uh, here. In the, key, in the questions on, uh, and answers. Emotional regulation. You... Come on. So let's start our, our webinar today with Daniel Hill, and I want to just appreciate the chance we have to speak with. <laughs> uh, well, uh, I, I, actually, I, I don't know that I came to that conclusion. Um, I or, or your observation. Yeah, I became uh, convinced of it um, after reading um, about affect. So he wrote a famous book on emotional emotion regulation theory. Because initially he wanted to write a book on a synthesis of what is it where you stand psychoanalysis? Yeah, initially he wanted to write a synthesis psychoanalysis, and then he realized that the different schools of psychoanalysis uh, didn't have enough in common to try to synthesize them together. Regulation, and um, uh, it made sense to me uh, that at the bottom of it all, sort of at the bottom of the mind, uh, was affect. Um, and it, it had actually been a, uh, uh, a search that I'd been on, you know, sort of what, what, what is primary, uh, what does it all boil down to? And um, um, that um, uh, came out of my psychoanalytic training. I'd ex been exposed to a lot of different schools of thought. Uh, and I realized that um, drive theory said it all came down to drives and then ego psychology said it all came down to the ego and self psychology said it all came down to the self. Um, and um, uh, object relations said it all came down to the object and the relationship to the object. Relational uh, psychoanalysis said it all came down to sort of inner subjectivity. Um, and uh, I realized that um, uh, if you look at it from the point of view of affect, you can explain all of those things, but none of those things can explain affect. And uh, so just on a theoretical level, it was... So affect means mood. And then valence is the intensity of your mood. So if you have a flat affect, it means you have a flat mood. If you have a positive affect, means that you're happy. The degree of your happiness or flatness or sadness is is called valence. It's very clear to me that uh, uh, that at the bottom of it all is affect. That it all comes down to affect, if you will. Um, and then it just uh, uh, also fit in with other. Uh... So, what he's saying is it all comes down to affect. Is it all comes down to your mood? So what I choose to focus on is going to have a profound effect on my mood. Right. I choose to focus on things that I'm happy about. Therefore, I do a show and I'm a pretty happy guy on the show, off the show. Addiction comes from an inability to regulate one's affect, meaning we all are going to lose the ability to regulate us ourselves. But then how quickly can you get back to self-regulation? Meaning how quickly can you calm yourself down when you get a surge of fear, a surge of anxiety? a surge of sadness, right? When you lose control of your emotions, how quickly can you regain a sense of agency over yourself? So I, I occasionally, I, I get flooded by anxiety. Probably when I lose emotional regulation, probably it's anxiety 70% of the time is, is probably just pure fear about 20% of the time. And then it's... Uh, sadness, maybe 10% of the time when, when I lose the ability to regulate myself. But what tends to keep me regulated is the, the cold shower in the morning, the 12-step uh, phone calls in the morning, the 12-step meetings, having sponsees, prayer and meditation, exercise first thing in the morning, getting that, that early morning 
sun, that early morning light, getting a good night's sleep, taking my uh, beef beef organ capsules. I, I think that helps. Um, Adapanil helps. Uh, trying to regulate the TV channels in my mind to focus on what's positive. Uh, writing out what I'm thinking and feeling, I find helps me to regulate my emotions. So people tend to, people with insecure attachment, like I have tendencies to tend towards one of two ways of dealing with their insecure attachment and their emotional regulation. Some people primarily turn to others for soccer and other people primarily turn to themselves in their own processes. I primarily turn to myself. So I would benefit turning more to other people when I'm racked by anxiety and fear and sadness. Uh, understandings I had that the mind grows out of the body and affect is essentially the, uh, the experience of the body. Um, mm -hmm. And so everything in the mind really comes out of the body is the way I understand it. And it's the way Freud understood it. And it's the way Piaget and many, many, many others understand it. But uh, in any case, um, once, I, once I began to realize what affect was too. Um, uh, that so for a lot of years, I would try to regulate my emotions by having sex or by, by looking at pornography. And that would be a temporary fix, but it didn't last very long. That also changed my mind. That also was a big convincer, I, I, in spite of the fact that- And I also tried to- Converting to a new religion, taking on a effective way of regulating my emotions. Um, uh, I was in the business of helping people with their emotional problems. I'd actually never had a course on emotion. And um, so that was another fact. It was just, you know. So all emotions, all thoughts, all, all feelings take place within the body. So I'm really grateful for my study of the Alexander Technique and then all the other things I do on top of that, other techniques such as positional release, strain, counter strain therapy, uh, those practices that I take on using my activator, right, to, to minimize pain and, and soreness and, and unnecessary tension in my body. I really want to feel great as much as I can. So I spend at least 90 minutes every morning doing various procedures and exercises trying to locate and release any muscular soreness or unnecessary tension so that I can feel free and feel lithe and feel happy because all my thinking, all my emotions, you know, all my preparation for the show, all my performance of the show, it takes place within my body. So 98% of the time I walk around with no physical pain. Unfortunately, last, last nine months, I've been struggling with uh, moderate to severe amounts of piriformis syndrome. So I haven't been able to take care of that also been struggling with some golfer's elbow in my right elbow, usually walking around with 99% of the time with no physical pain. I, I, I learned something and it uh, changed everything. So yes. Very long answer to a short question. No, it's, it's, yeah, it's very, very good and very broad because I think uh, we need to address over and over. Biology up through the social sciences that are looking at crowds and you know populations um, all subscribe to the same notion, which is that in order for this organism to be healthy, it must be in regulated states in order for it to function adaptively and optimally. Uh, it can only do- Right, to be effective, to be happy, to be free of addictions, you have to be able to regulate yourself, right? So that when you lose your sense of regulation, when you become filled with anxiety, fear, or, or sadness, that you're able to get back to a happier, more effective self. Do that when it's in regulated states. As soon as we become dysregulated, um, our mind goes south, our body goes south, our relationships with other people go south. So um, I think uh, you're not yourself when you're dysregulated. I remember 
like when when I, I got overwhelmed by by anxiety, I don't see things as clearly. I don't make as good of decisions. I don't get along as well with other people. Uh, the quality of my work suffers. Quality of my relations suffer. Right? All sorts of bad things happen when I have too much anxiety. On the other hand, yesterday afternoon, I was exhausted. But I thought, I, I'm going to do a live stream because the anxiety that comes with a live stream, that, that moderate amount of anxiety that will bring me out of my exhaustion and the, the possibility that I could absolutely destroy my life on a live stream keeps me alert and, and energized. So a certain amount of anxiety is a good thing. A certain amount of stress is a good thing. It, it gets you out of exhaustion and passivity. This is what we see in our clinical practices, people who have lost the wheel of... Uh, which is a regulatory disorder. So um, yeah, regulation is at the heart of the matter. Okay, and, and how does attachment theory come into play with regulation? Uh, well, um, it turns out that um, the way... And uh, reasonable response, Luke, have you continued to pursue the John Sarno approach for pain? No, I haven't. I've, uh, I, I'm afraid I've let that go. So maybe I need to return to it. I mean, not because I changed my mind. I, I think his work is amazing. I've just... You know me, I'm a, a serial a serial enthusiast, so I just uh, moved on to other things. But yeah, I probably benefit from getting back to doing the John Sarno work. So the essence of John Sarno's work is that most physical pain is the result of unconscious emotions. And if you if you bring those emotions to light through journaling, through psychotherapy, then the body won't need to cause you crippling pain. So I got into John Sarno when I had, when I had a lot of back pain, surprisingly, I think about a year ago. So rarely do I have any back pain, but it just suddenly came on and it came on after I met with some friends and I didn't know if I had some jealousy of my friend's accomplishments, but after a very good time, a very pleasant evening, you know, a wonderful dinner with friends, Suddenly, I got this debilitating back pain, and I thought it was probably you know, some some emotions that I was I was trying to repress. So I haven't I haven't had any back pain since then. So I haven't revisited. I'm just dealing with this piriformis syndrome, which may well be the same same sort of thing, leading to unexpressed unconscious emotions. That uh, once I bring them to light, then then the need to to distort and and unnecessarily tense my muscles may diminish so we have two ways to keep ourselves in regulated states one of them is we just do it automatically you know when we're not going around all day thinking stay regulated stay regulated we just have systems luke sublimates his exhibitionism with supplements and health fads <laughs> that keep ourselves in regulated states um and when we become stressed staying regulated is more difficult but nevertheless the automatic system usually handles it so why am I an exhibitionist? Because remember, my mother got very sick on my first birthday and I was removed from my mother. I live with about a dozen different families over the next three and a half years. And that, that normal connection that you form with your mother, where she smiles at you and you smile at her. I, I didn't get that, right? I didn't get that normal, that normal connection of a baby to mother. So I grew up with mother hunger. I grew up with an abnormal thirst for attention, which 
leads to exhibitionism and like this desperate need, like, you know, please notice me, please notice me, please see me because I wasn't seen very much as an infant. Right. There's a secondary system uh, that develops later that, that I'm getting, I haven't lost your question about why attachment theory matters here. Um, and um, uh, the, uh, there's a secondary system where we sort of do it deliberately, deliberately, or we do it with an Dear UCLA, please give Luke Ford a PhD. It will help him out a bunch. Brian says, I've been in contact with COVID-positive people twice, still haven't caught it. It's a very weak, low transmission disease. Yeah, obviously, if you have been around two people with COVID and you haven't caught it, then that's absolutely a very solid scientific basis for making generalizations about the transmissibility of COVID. I mean, who cares about the experience of a billion other people your experience, that should be the primary prism through which we understand the transmissibility of COVID. Very good point. Another person, and we calm ourselves down or keep, in, keep ourselves in regulated states um, uh, in that way. Um, both of those systems, this ability to sort of interact with another person in a way that uh, keeps us in regulated states, makes us, brings us back into a regulated state, or our capacity to do it by ourselves, they both form in the early attachment relationship. The, the automatic piece of that forms in the first eight. So I grew up not very good at regulating myself. I tried to regulate myself, I think, initially by going into fantasy. I tell myself the, these amazing stories, adventure stories, where I was this strong, powerful, capable person in my fantasies while I was kind of the opposite in real life. And then I, I learned to regulate my, myself starting about age eight or nine with sexual fantasies. And then that led into the active pursuit of pornographic fantasies about age 16. And then I discovered in my junior year of high school, a very pleasurable solo activity that seemed to rid me of unnecessary tension. And it was just a ton of fun as well. So that helped to regulate me. Uh, I became much more skilled with women. So I got girlfriends and I got lovers and their attentions would help regulate me. And I thought, ah, oh, if I can only become famous, that will, that will help me deal with my anxiety and, and my sadness and my frustration. 18 months of that early caretaker child relationship. That's when, that's when the neurological systems that do that stuff automatically, that's when they wire up. And uh, so the way that early relationship goes, uh, that's where we sort of, well, let's maybe put it differently. Those two-person processes that went on between that go on between the infant and the caretaker, they become internalized as one-person processes. They become inscribed as... Yeah, and if you don't get that, then you may very well be seeking for it for decades afterward. Um, procedural memories, you know, the memories of sort of how to do things. And um, uh, so that's where we develop that in that early attachment relationship. Um, and the sort of way we do this with another person also develops in that early attachment relationship. So that early attachment relationship is fundamental uh surprise to nobody right i mean it's just, uh very clear in a million ways that the um, attachment uh... so i did notice but i wouldn't have been able to articulate it as a child when i had friends when i would sort of get adopted into other people's families that my craziness would considerably diminish like when i was able to connect and bond with other people my need to exhibit myself, my need to be the center of attention, my need to provoke and inflame situations, just 
it just became a lot more mild. And then on the other hand, when I felt isolated and, and alone, then my acting out became much more extreme. Um, is, uh, uh, provides us with our most powerful understanding of our development. But um, uh, most of that is looked at sort of later. It's this first 18 months that at the neurological level, that's what matters most. That's what lays the foundation for the rest of life. Yes, thank you very much. Somebody in the public has asked. Um... Theory, rapid regulation theory, help us clinically. Uh, that's sort of what the whole book's about. Uh, it, it one with what we were just talking about. It, it, it tells us how this stuff develops. And when we understand how it develops, that has a lot to offer us about how we can um, make changes in those systems therapeutically, right? Sort of if you know how something develops, then that should inform a lot uh, about the way you work with patients in order to develop things that they haven't developed, right? The, uh, uh, um, if these systems are deficient, if the affect regulating systems are deficient, and uh, Reasonable Responsible says, remarkable how many Steve Saylor commenters and others who should know better indulge in the same sort of extrapolation from personal experience that uh, Brian just exhibited here. So in 2015, 2016, I used to have a very high opinion of the Steve Saylor commentary out, and now I have a pretty low opinion of most of the comments on Steve Saylor's blog. So either I've changed or the quality of the content has changed or perhaps I think this is what it is, that in a certain situation, the comments were much smarter, but the situation has changed, right? 2022 is not 2015, 2016. And many people with populist tendencies, such as, oh, let's reduce immigration. Let's uh, get smarter about our trade policy. Many of these populist tendencies work really well for some issues and then don't work as well for other issues, such as COVID. And so many of the conspiracy theories and populist uh, knee-jerk reactions that have, have dominated uh, Steve Saylor blog comments for, for a long time, they were quite useful in 2015, 2016, but have steadily lost their utility. So the, the populist response is a very good one in some circumstances and a terrible one in other circumstances. The elite response is very useful in some circumstances, terrible in others. Like there's no group that is blessed with the truth in all situations, right? We evolved to have right-wing tendencies towards throwing up barriers towards outsiders and left-wing tendencies to welcome outsiders. We grew up with right-wing tendencies to punish people who violate norms. And we also evolved with left-wing tendencies to try to understand and nurture wrongdoers. And both of these tendencies have their application, right? It just depends on the situation. But we have these differing political tendencies because these tendencies helped people evolve and survive over millennia. Uh, the, the focus of the treatment has to be on repairing uh, or building up uh, these regulatory capacities that didn't form early. So it, the, the theory has a lot to tell us about development, which is sort of interesting, of course. Uh, and it has to tell us a lot about um, uh, how these disorders uh, formed or failed, or, or they were either deficits or there's some kind of a malformation of the system. Uh, and hopefully they have a lot. So we all get dysregulated every day. Like I could get an email and I'll be filled with fear. I could get a phone call and my anxiety may just spike. Right. I could hear a song and, and it reminds me of a woman that I used to date and, and I wasn't able to pull it off. I remember I, I, I took her out, I think on, on the second date 
and we went to dinner and as I was saying goodnight, I think I kissed her on the cheek and I was so nervous. It was like a Tuesday night and I said, Shabbat Shalom. So that wasn't the reason it didn't work out, but like I'll hear a song and I remember a relationship that didn't work out and I uh, may be smarting from you know, recognizing, oh, there's this really attractive woman and she's not interested in me. And so I may go into a little pit of despair. So each of us is going to get dysregulated multiple times during the day. But how dysregulated will we get? How quickly can we get back into a regulated state? And how much help will we need to get back there? And how often do we get dysregulated? So I don't think I've become dysregulated many times during a live stream. But to tell us about therapeutic action and how we can um, uh, work with patients as adults uh, in, in, in ways that are helpful uh, to these uh, deficient capacities in regulating affect. Thank you. It, it, actually, let, let me add one more thing too. Thank it's you. very important for assessment. And just to sort of give you a very sort of uh, a brief thing, you can sort of look at somebody's capacity to regulate affect. Um, in a, in and, and one important thing about COVID Right, Australia has one fiftieth the per capita death rate of America from COVID, but you know most of that difference may not be anything that they've done. There's so much we don't know. There's so much we don't know. So most of that difference may simply because a different geographic locale. Australia had a much milder experience with the Spanish flu as well. Right, Australia didn't have significantly fewer Spanish flu deaths per capita than America because they had all these innovative, comprehensive, socialized medicine responses. So I've been pretty mild, generally speaking, in, in my COVID thoughts, because there's just so much we don't know. We're, we're dealing with this one, once in a century, sounds like uh, influenza, but the, the differing death rates, we, we don't know why America has 50 times per capita more, more death from COVID than Australia. I suspect that Australian policies have some role to play in that difference, but that role may be 25%, it may be 75%. Like why has Africa had such a low death rate from COVID? It's so much we don't know. In, in sort of simple ways. One is um, how, how frequently do they become dysregulated? Uh, another is um, uh, how intense. I find the more, the more money I have in the bank, the less often I get dysregulated. The more solid my friendships, the less often I get dysregulated. I, I get dysregulated less often if I'm if I, if I have a, a girlfriend, if I have you know good friends that I'm seeing regularly, if I have a solid connection with with people at synagogue, if I have a regular source of income, if I have good relations with my family. Is that dysregulation? Uh, another is what form does that regulation take? Do they get into very low states of arousal? Oh, great point from Art Bell. Sanity is contagious. You want to live up to the company you're in. Yes, uh, gays may sexualize male attention from lack of dad type. Yeah, I've never met a gay man who had a good relationship with his father. So one theory is that men become gay because they lack that bond with their father, and so they then eroticize male attention. Yeah, I lust for women 
because of the lack of mum time. I remember I came to America at age 11, and for the first time I heard I was insecure because Californians are much more psychologically sophisticated than Australians. So Australians weren't saying that I was insecure. They just said that I was an a-hole. But in California, everyone started saying I was insecure, and I was insecure, and I still have some insecure tendencies, right? If I was... If I was in a healthy state, I, I think I've had therapists who say, like, if you were healthy, you probably wouldn't live stream or blog very much. Or are they anxious and, you know, up at high levels? That tells you a lot. Uh, and then the third is what if, when they get into regulated, dysregulated states, how long does it take them to get back into regulated states? Yes, yes. So I noticed with the latest strains of COVID that they're incredibly infectious and almost nobody's dying from them. So very low death rates. So it seems like we may be getting a natural immunity from these latest highly infectious waves of COVID. So Omicron supposedly was 70 times more infectious than Delta. And then we've got even more infectious waves of Omicron, uh, uh, waves of, of COVID after Omicron, but uh, hospitalization rates remain relatively low and death rates remain relatively low. So this may, may act as a form of, of, immunization against more severe variants of COVID. But I think people are pretty much running out of the patience to stay home when they get sick. So I'm noticing more and more people going out into the world, going to synagogue, going to the grocery store, flying on a plane, going to work when they have COVID, when they're still contagious with COVID. So for the past two and a half years, people have been remarkably responsible about trying to minimize their transmission of COVID. And I think we have to accept that uh, that's running out. That tells you an enormous amount about the resiliency and about their capacity to stay in regulated states. We all get dysregulated, you know, daily basis. It's really a question of uh, if we can we get back into regulated states. Exactly. I, I think you touch on this subject in depth in the lectures, in the seminar. So again, yeah, that's very good. Uh, well, um, if somebody, uh, uh, you know, the word dissociation is uh, sort of problematic because it really refers to two different things. Has uh, Luke's therapist seen any of his live streams? I remember I gave one therapist a copy of my porn movie. And thank God she couldn't bring herself to, to watch it. So I'm not sure if any of my therapists have seen my, my live streams or my blog posts, but, but the results of my therapy have often inspired me to to write blog posts or to to ruminate here on my live streams. Uh, this has only recently come out in the uh, uh, in the literature the past ten years, maybe. Oops, sorry about that. Um, but um, uh, there's sort of so this person uses the language of self states. Um, uh, the, if, if you're talking about self states, you're talking about a dysregulation of structures, sort of later developing structures, um, where it's, it's sort of like a compartmentalization. This self-state doesn't know about that self-state that doesn't know about this other self-state. Maybe this self-state knows about two of these self-states. Right, so this really resonates with me because I often didn't recognize my different personalities. I remember I was in eighth grade. I, I finished off the last six months of the school year with, with a woman. I, I stayed with this older woman while my parents were in Washington, D.C. And one day she, she came onto the playground and I didn't realize that she was walking there and I, I didn't get up to bat. Someone had, had 
flied out in front of me and that was the end of the softball match and I didn't get out get up to bat and I just started throwing around the F word the F-A-G word because I mean that's what I learned when I came to America whenever you you're upset you just started calling people F-A-G's and I was just going off with the F-A-G word and then like suddenly you know my my caretaker is like right there so when I was younger, I didn't recognize like, you know, lustful Luke would forget everything else. Angry Luke would forget everything else. You know, religiously inspired Luke would, you know, try to turn his back on the, the more disreputable sides of his personality. So I, I had all these different states that didn't really talk to each other. It didn't cohere with each other. And so I've always been most comfortable with having different realms for my life and keeping people in the different realms of my life kind of separate. And, and then when they happen to, to meld together, it'd make me very nervous because I would behave completely differently in, in these different realms. I would code switch. Like I was, I was the easiest of the three kids to raise, but I caused the most pain to my parents once I became an adult. So when I was at home, I'd speak in the way I was raised to speak. But then as soon as I walked out the door, I'd code switch and speak and act in a completely different way. So one of the good things I found about getting older is uh, more sense of comfort with the different sides to me and more of an integration so that the different parts of me are not as dramatically at war as they once were. States, but not a third, and so on. So you've got really these compartmentalizations of the personality. Uh yeah, what percentage of my therapists were women? Uh, all of my therapists but one were women. So nine out of 10, I had had two male psychiatrists, three male psychiatrists. I had a preference for a female therapist because I have mother hunger. I also have dad hunger, which is why I was such a devoted follower of Dennis Prager. I mean, he really sated my, my dad hunger. He was like the, the ultimate father figure for me. And he played such a you know profound role in my emotional life, not just intellectual and spiritual or religious life, but um, on my emotional life because he was this, you know, this, this father figure. But I feel more keenly the mother hunger, but I've also felt very keenly the father hunger. So I would often have much stronger relationships with, be more interested in and have stronger relationships with my friend's fathers rather than even with my friends. And I'd often hang out after school so I could just hang out with some of my teachers and uh, just just loved, you know, these older male, you know, substitute father figures have just played a huge role in my life. And none of none of those experiences turned out badly, except for the UCLA professor who asked me if I wanted a blowjob. And even with him, like I had a wonderful like six year friendship with him. Uh, after that question, it, it took a bit of a toll on the friendship, but overall, it was such a, a very positive, positive thing in my life. Uh, instead of an integrated personality, you've got dissociated self-states, right? There's another kind of dissociation uh, that is more primitive than that. And that is a dissociation that goes on at the neurological level. And that's dissociation when we get into what are called dissociated states. You can see that this language... So people who are psychologically sophisticated have also noticed that I've been dissociated much of the time, that I'm not really present. And in reality, I tend to lack empathy for other people. And much of it is because I'm so afraid of being flooded with empathy. So usually I, I feel like I have less empathy than a normal healthy person. 
But then on, on occasions, particularly when I was younger, I would just get flooded with so much empathy for the suffering of the people around me that I would become incapacitated. I would just become uh, childlike. I would become pathetic. And so I've kind of been afraid of that feeling empathic side of myself. And so I reacted by being a jerk and trying to just shut down my empathy so that I could think more clearly. Because if I allowed the empathy to roll in, it was very scary to me. Needs to be improved here because we're using the same word to refer to a couple of different things. But when we get into dissociated states, not self-states, dissociated states of consciousness, when, you know, we can't think clearly and... Yeah, like my girlfriends have often said, you know, what's wrong with you? Like that's, that's about the most common sentence that my girlfriends have said to you. What's wrong with you? Because I would be dissociated, uh, lacking in empathy, uh, cruel, cynical, sarcastic, not really present to, to their pain or to the situation. And, and they would let me know when I said something that had hurt someone's feelings, when I needed to apologize. Where something's off, or maybe we are uh, very detached, overly detached, or overly immersed in experience. We're in these states where our state of consciousness is no longer in our control and uh, where we, we can't really think clearly or fully. So that's dissociation at the neurological level where our states of consciousness are being affected and or where our clarity of consciousness, let me put it that way, is being affected, right? So um, uh, if I am uh, working with, and, and that, those altered. So one way that I tried to disassociate from reality for years was my passion, passion attachment to Judaism. Like I just thought that if I just passionately attached myself to this awesome way of life, that it would help me overcome my compulsions and addictions and, and my cruelty and my carelessness. And I, I thought like, oh, let me just cleave to God. Let me cleave to the Torah. And I disassociated from reality, became someone that the people didn't recognize. I became like a religious extremist and it didn't work. And then I met a woman who had large breasts and all my commitment to, to God and Torah took a backseat to her E-cup breasts. States of consciousness, those uh, uh, disordered states of consciousness, those occur when we're dysregulated. So, Do I listen to Prager Radio? No, I, I let my subscription to Pragertopia expire in 2016, I believe. So I haven't listened to much Dennis Prager since the fall of 2015. So I'm not, uh, not terribly interested in Dennis Prager's thought. I, I occasionally dip into his Torah commentary. Well, if I'm working with somebody that is suffering from those kinds of problems, I'm going directly after the regulatory mechanisms at a very fundamental level because they're having difficulty at this very fundamental level. If somebody's got problems with dissociated self-states where their personality is sort of split up and is dissociated, you know, they've got these sort of sub-personalities going on that don't really know much about each other, that, you know, don't fit with each other. Um, if I'm working with somebody at that level, I'm, I'm working at a higher level, right? I'm th there now I'm talking to them about these different self-states. And it's a much more cognitive, top-down kind of treatment. In the other one, the therapeutic action is down at the lower level, sort of at the bottom. I love the seven-step prayer uh, by Creator. I'm now willing that you should have all of me, good and bad. Please remove from me every defect of character, including my you know, carelessness. Uh, grant me strength as I go out from here to do your will. More somatic level. It's a more bottom-up kind of treatment. 
these so, make so much sense. Yeah. yeah. So somatic work means means body work. So Alexander technique, strain counter strain therapy, uh, becoming at ease in your body and feeling good in your body and feeling strong in your body and working out, lifting weights, right? That has significantly helped my emotional regulation. It makes so much sense to have this integration of top-down, bottom-up approaches. Thank you. New York. I've heard him speak many times. Uh, uh, I read his first Talk book. Talk about Alan Shaw. Um, I have a lot of respect for him. Uh, although um, he's looking at this in many ways differently than this. He's, he's still, I think, more interested in a one-person psychology. One-person psychology. Mm -hmm. One-person psychology, yeah. And so yeah, one-person psychology, I think that's when you're trying to regulate yourself on your own. And uh, I think two people is obviously regulating with someone else. David Lee Roth of Van Halen said his busy dad made him hungry for attention. Um, uh, this work is much more involved with a two-person relational approach to psychotherapy. Um, yes, yes, yes. Uh, Solms is more out of a more traditional uh, orientation. He, 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 he translated uh, Freud's uh, text. Yeah, when I have problems or when I'm like, filled with fear and anxiety, uh, 95, 98% of the time, I, I try to work it out myself. And I would do much better to turn to other people. Not 100% of the time, but a 50-50 approach. He's, he's quite an extraordinary guy. Yeah, yeah. Great so, people. Great, thank you. I want to ask about the difference between one-person psychotherapy and the two-person psychotherapy. How does this play in the affect regulation theory model? Yeah, well, I would say the affect regulation theory is most fundamentally a two-person, but it involves a one-person psychology as well. It really is a mixture of both. Um, the the, the two-person model, for example, I'll give you an example of how it plays out. The two-person model plays out because we sort of have two ways to keep ourselves in regulated states. We can auto-regulate where we do it all by ourselves, or Yes, I remember when I was in college that I worked in construction and there was this homeless guy named Jesse who had a big screaming eagle tattoo on his back. I think he'd served in the armed forces and I got to know him and I lent him money because he was he was homeless and he he never he never paid me back. He just uh, disappeared. And I wrote this very moving story about him for my English composition class. And the teacher said, you know, don't be surprised, you know, none of you are going to get a good grade for your first paper. Well, I gave him a story about Jesse and I got an A minus. I just uh, blew him away. It was, it was a great story. But I, I was I was going through a Marxist phase and uh, in, in, I was taking a speech class and I gave a speech about you know, how we need to be more compassionate towards the homeless. And now, yeah, when I walk past the blue tents, when I walk past the homeless, I pretty much have my empathy turned off, completely turned off. I'm not out there giving them needles, not out there giving them meds, not giving them fresh undies, not giving them fresh fruit, not giving them anything. When they ask for money, I give them a zip. We can do it dyadically, which is the way we started out being able to do it when we were infants. And uh, that's a, a sort of a two-person uh, psychology gift set. Yeah, uh, Bill, great comment. This is a classic Look Forward video. He plays a video and then <laughs> talks about how it applies to him. <laughs> so if I'm doing a video on inflation, it's like, oh, how does this apply to me? If I'm doing a video on Russia and Ukraine, it's like, oh, this reminds me of a, a conflict I had in ninth grade. That up here, right? So um, uh, um, we all have sort of a one-person thing going on and a two-person thing going on when it comes to affect regulation. And this treatment is really aimed at uh, uh, looking at both of them. And, and, and by the way, um, uh, most of our patients, you'll find, uh, lean heavily 
uh, are insecure patients anyway. They lean very heavily towards one kind of affect regulation or the other. Some so almost all addicts have insecure attachments. So about two thirds of the population has secure attachment. They, when they're treated well by people, they you know, develop bonds with people. And when they're treated badly by someone, then they distance. But someone with insecure attachment, like I, I grew up with, I will obsess over my, my bonds. And because I'm so obsessed and, and insecure and frightened about them, I will you know, be much more likely to deteriorate and, and destroy them. So one is not stuck in an attachment style. So you can move from insecure to secure attachment, which I feel like I have largely done over the past few years. Some gravitates heavily towards autoregulation and some gravitate heavily towards dyadic regulation. Some people... So autoregulation means you regulate yourself. You, you meditate, you work out, you pray. And then dyadic regulation means you reach out to someone else and you regulate your fears and anxieties through talking to them. Really have difficulty for getting themselves back into regulated states or staying regulated all by themselves. They need to talk to somebody, right? <laughs> we viewers, Amir, Lukeologists in training. Luke is a genius of himself. <laughs> Other people, when they get stressed and get dysregulated, go off by themselves, you know, and to don't tell anybody what's going on. Just try and calm themselves by themselves. So 95% of the time, yeah, when I get dysregulated, I go off by myself and don't tell anyone. I'm just kind of amazed at those people who have the strength to open up to someone else in those vulnerable times. Yes, so we need to divide it up. Yes. Uh, it's your patients. They get sort of divided up like this. Sure, sure. So you help both to balance whatever extreme they are. They may be. Certainly one of the goals of treatment. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And what also the therapist plays a role here in implicating its him or herself in, in the process, right? Yeah. Uh, of uh, being part of this dance of regulation called dysregulation yeah, together yeah. with the client. It's going to ultimately be our relationship with the patient that is the curative factor. Yeah. yeah. So it's not the type of therapy that's going on, right? It's not the theory behind the therapy. It's not even the therapy itself. It's the relationship that you form with your therapist that is healing, which is helps you to self-regulate. Beautiful it's not the ostensible content of the therapy. It's the relationship. It's the connection that you build with the therapist. The the the, uh, the strongest therapeutic actions are not um, interpretations or observations or things like that. They're helpful, of course. Yeah. But the real therapeutic action for this stuff is more experiential, less cognitive. Yes. So we have a question from Sweden from Christina Lindstrand. If you have a security Ms. Lindstrom, was it? Yeah. Yeah. So. so uh, 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 says, uh, was asking about is when you have a trauma later in life, can that cause regulatory problems? Definitely, right? Uh, uh, trauma in later life affects the brain, just like trauma in early life. But the, 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 and the, the good news is that if all addictions are regulation disorders, right? All addictions are substances or processes that you take or participate in so that you don't feel bad. You want to change how you feel. So you start turning to a substance such as alcohol or drugs or a process such as pornography or spending or gambling. Then the substances and processes become abused and then you move through abuse to full on addiction, right? You abuse alcohol, then you become addicted. You abuse pornography, then you become addicted. And 
one of the things that uh, has helped me regulate is structure. So pretty much every 12-step program has structure. So you have time tracking, you track your spending, you track your earning, you track your activities, you track what you do during the day. You have like three circles in one sex addiction approach. So the, the middle circle is the, you know, the safe, the, the good circle. The, the middle circle is where you're in danger of slipping into the outer circle where you start to act out. So, for example, for many people in sex addiction recovery, watching Netflix is kind of an, a middle circle activity where you could get triggered to start, start acting out. Now, you may wonder, Forty, why is this always this soft orange light on your face when you stream? And the answer is because it's always morning in America here. If you've got a secure attachment, your prognosis for being able to resolve and uh, deal with subsequent trauma is much better than if you did not have a secure attachment. If you have a secure attachment, you develop pretty good regulatory capacity. And that is worth its weight in gold when you're dealing with subsequent trauma, right? Um, if you don't have that early secure foundation for regulating affect, then you're actually more vulnerable to trauma. Yes. If you do run into trauma, it's more likely to turn into PSD if you have had early relational trauma. Thank you. And charity and- Explain what resilience looks like from an affect regulation point of view. So we are, you know, have this sort of zone where we're regulated, you know, we might go up and get tense, but stay regulated, or we might go down and get really sad, but stay regulated, right? Um, but then we've got these thresholds. Yeah, a certain amount of stress and anxiety is good for you. Like without stress and without anxiety, I was just wiped yesterday. I was not gonna do anything useful uh, beyond just watching documentaries. But the, the addition of the, the stress and anxiety of doing a live stream, it uh, took me out of myself, gave me more energy than I would have otherwise. Nothing like an audience. We go over the threshold, either hyper aroused over the threshold or hypo aroused under the, you know, at the lower threshold. And we go down it now all of a sudden you're depressed and you're, you know, you're not functioning very well, or you're sort of overly anxious and you're also not functioning very well. Right. So I remember when I was blogging, often I didn't have like meaningful human contact all week. I was, I was like either dealing with porn people or just everything was on the phone or via email. Then Friday night, I'd go to family's homes for, for meals, and I was just like bouncing off the walls because I was just so excited to have genuine human contact with my fellow Orthodox Jews that I would, you know, I would lose my emotional regulation and I would speak inappropriately. I would behave inappropriately. I would hit on people inappropriately. I would make inappropriate jokes. I would sit where I was not supposed to sit. I would speak when I was not supposed to speak. I was not regulated. I was so happy and hyper and excited to be a guest at, at a meal. Oi. In both guys, I talked about this a little bit before. So now the name of the game is get back into a regulated state. And from the point of view of affect regulation, resilience is the capacity to efficiently return to a regulated state after you have become dysregulated. And that's its understanding of what emotional resilience is. It's the capacity to return to regulated states after having become dysregulated. Perfect. Thank you very much. So you may think that this is gay and stupid, but like understanding what this guy's talking about, it's, uh, it's more effective at regulating yourself than uh, jacking off four times a day. And I speak from experience. I don't, there's no, and I don't think, by the way, the literature is so guilty about this. I think the profession is guilty of this. 
um, it's completely clear that people come into the world with a temperament and that that has, you know, th there are environmental slash prenatal effects on the infant that can affect that temperament, but there is a heavy genetic load as well that can affect that. So that's just sort of out of the box. Then on top of that, you've got experiences that are now occurring while this sort of, let's just refer to the early developing automatic system, right? Um, uh, when that's wiring up, the experiences you're having are gonna have an enormous effect on how that system wires up, right? But there's also genes that are getting expressed and depending on what the experiences are, getting sorry, genes that are dependent on certain kinds of experiences for getting expressed. So you have what's called an epigenetic effect. And, and actually, I think nowadays, the old nature-nurture controversy is sort of done with because it's completely established now that uh, in, in a field called epigenetics, uh, epigenetics that it's uh, always an interaction between the environment and the expression of the genes. Okay, let me wind up for this evening, quoting the immortal words of Styx. I think this is the song 1958. And so, my friends, we'll say goodnight. The time has claimed his prize, but tonight can always last as long as we keep alive the memories of paradise. Bye-bye. <laughs>